Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry and developers. Today, my guest is Casey Moratori. And first of all, I want to thank you, Casey, for coming on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. No problem. So I'm just going to jump into Handmade Hero. How did Handmade Hero start? And do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about Handmade Hero? I'm sure. Uh, Handmade Hero was just kind of a random thing that happened. Uh, It was not a planned thing by any stretch of the imagination. Essentially, what was going on at the time was that Twitch was, you know, the, the platform for streaming games. I guess originally it was sort of a platform for streaming anything. It, I think it was called Justin TV or something like that. Yes. And it was, you know, it was for streaming whatever. But then they found that uh, streaming people playing games was the thing that actually stuck and that got the viewers. Uh, and I don't really know exactly the history of it because I wasn't watching it at that time. But then Twitch.tv became actually popular and, you know, got purchased by Amazon, that sort of stuff. And at that time, very few people, if any, were doing any sort of programming streaming, meaning there wasn't a lot of, you know, oh, I can go, you know, load up Twitch and find software developers developing software on there. And so what happened was uh, Jonathan Blow, who is the author of, you know, two of the, the most famous indie games kind of, of all time, I guess I might say, Braid and The Witness, um, he decided to make a new programming language. And this new programming language uh, was really kind of impressive right out of the gate. And the way that he sort of was doing idea dissemination for it was on Twitch. He would do like a live stream and he would do a demo of the programming language. So because he and I are friends and a lot of people think of us as being associated, even though we're not really. I mean, we we did work on The Witness together. I did some I did some programming for that game. Um, but other than that, we don't really work together. We're friends, uh, but we don't really work together. But people were asking me uh, when I was going to do some live streaming. And so I said, well, I mean, I don't know exactly what I would live stream. And when I thought about it, I was like, well, what if I just live stream the process of like making a game, you know, like the whole thing from scratch. And I'll just like turn the thing on and I'll program the game, eh? you know? And this was just kind of at a whim. And I figured, you know, it'd have like five viewers or something like these things usually do. Uh, but weirdly enough, the first episode had like 800 viewers, which is not huge by Twitch standards. But, but it's still pretty big considering that's your first episode. Did you do any promotion or for anything yeah. at that one? No. Uh, basically, all I did was I think I tweeted the... Uh, like, all I did was tweet it. That's it. Um, and so the demand for it was shockingly high. And so it ended up being like a thing. Now, that's kind of good. I mean, I guess I don't know if it's good or bad. What I would say is... It's good in the sense that when you do something randomly like that, it's pretty exciting if all of a sudden people actually care about it, which you didn't really probably think they were going to. It's kind of bad from the standpoint of if I had thought it through more, 
I probably could have prepared something. I would have taken it a lot more seriously and maybe worked out like what was going to be done or what was the point of this thing. Cause I, none of that was true. It literally, I just started programming and it sort of actually does become a problem for the project uh, or did fairly early on too, because a lot of people started using it for educational purposes, meaning, you know, a lot of people were like learning programming stuff from mm. this stream. Again, which is fabulous, but it's not really set up for that, right? Like yeah. I'm not, I didn't structure the thing in, in a series of lessons. I don't really teach on the stream. I just explain what I'm doing, which, you know, again, is great from the standpoint of if you can get something out of that, then I'm happy. But it's really not an educational resource from that standpoint. So, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I'm really happy. I mean, I've literally received thousands of emails from people, even after I took my email address off of the website because I was getting too many emails. Like, seriously, I still get them to this day of people like, thanks so much for Handmade Hero. Like, it totally changed my opinion of programming. It's like so much more fun now, like, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm totally psyched that it had that effect, but I'm also, you know, fairly disappointed in the project from the standpoint of if I'd known that's what it was going to be, I could have done a much better job. I would have made it something different and tried to provide more dense education for people because that turned out to be the important part. Yeah. I mean, but the question then is if you had prepared a bit more, structured it a bit more in an educational fashion, would he have picked off the way it did, did did people watch it just because it was maybe a bit more raw and just natural instead of it being a bit, you know, instead of it being, inst you know, instructional. So, I mean, obviously you never know, but, you know, it's possible that they just watched, um, they watched it and then they enjoyed it just because it felt like how they might code if, you know, they was on your level, for example. Well, uh, yes, but I think what I'm saying is, you know, all of this is hindsight is 2020. So obviously I, I didn't even know that it was going to have anyone watch it. So, but I'm saying with the benefit of having seen Handmade Hero, I now know how to do that kind of teaching, meaning ah, I understand how to structure things so that they are basically live and dynamic, but would be segmented into lessons that go in the appropriate order, right? It's yeah. not really necessarily about ch changing Handmade Hero entirely, but it would be about going, oh, okay, we're going to rearrange how this thing is set up so that it provides more of an on-ramp for each section, right? Um, and things like that. So, you know, I don't think you want to take away some of that dynamism. Like you don't want to not be live coding. You don't want to be, right? But you do want to think about like, okay, what order are we going to do things in? And all right, are we, let's not do this part that we would normally do because that's like way too advanced right now. And let's put that more at the end or, or not do it at all or whatever. Right. And things like that are very important for education. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. And that first video that you did that got 800 or so, you know, viewers, like what was, what was it? What was you covering or, you know, doing in that video? I mean, it's literally just like how to build a Win32 app from the command line. I mean, that's it. Like I, I open up, you know, I, I, I open a window basically. I'm like, you know, here's the code that we would type in, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're going to 
pound include windows.h. We're going to make a win main. We're going to call create, you know, register window class and create window, right? And then we're going to have a build.bat file that just calls CL and links to user32.lib and gdi32.lib, right? Um, yeah. That's all That's, that's all I did. That's it. And if you go look at that thing's got like 100,000 views or something <laughs> on YouTube of like just me typing that in. And so, you know, like I said, that's why it's weird. It's it's really weird, right? It's not what you would expect. But I think what it taught me, broadly speaking, was just that the educational materials right now are not good, right? If, yeah, if this is the kind of thing that people are getting excited about and sending emails about how much it helped them and it changed their opinion of programming and all these incredibly glowing things that people have said. I, If you look at Handmade Hero objectively, you just pretty much have to admit it's not really that good. And so what it tells me is we are really kind of failing to deliver quality programming education to new programmers. I mean, I, I really don't think there's any other way to interpret what happened with Handmade Hero other than um, that, that we really, we just really aren't teaching people to program the right way. That the material, the the experiences they're having in their colleges, the first materials they're encountering online, we're just not teaching people programming right. No, I mean I totally agree because because um, I've got a YouTube channel as well. I don't know if you've ever come across this on our systems. And like I remember, the, some of the first videos I did on there was for the Cocos Two DX game engine, and mm. the first two videos I did it at the resolution that I, you know, just had my Mac at the time at, which was twenty five sixty by fourteen forty. For me, it looked fine, um, <laughs> but uh, and for people that aren't on a tw- native twenty seven inch display in full screen and many people view it on their phones that's another thing i you know i learned after as well but even if you're on your laptop or your computer and you've just got a little window next to which is very common to have you know a little you know browser window next to your development environment and trying to copy along there's no way that they can you know make out what i'm doing and you know i had comments on the video the first couple of videos you know, of that effect. And then the third video I ever uploaded on the channel, I ended up, you know, increasing the zoom factor. And now pretty much all my videos have 150 to 200% zoom factor as a result of those comments. Yet people still viewed it in the, I think tens, maybe hundreds, but definitely tens of thousands. And it was because there was literally Cocos 2DX had so many big games that were created using it. They, you know, was very successful. The company that, you know, maintained it, Chukong, but they had no resources, especially not in English. And even their Chinese resources were lacking because I had to look at them. But their English resources were non-existent for the most part and definitely not up up to date. So as a result, people were just desperate for some sort of resource and they were willing to make do with you know me doing it at you know 2560 by 1440 uh but it just been hard to read and then just them just trying to listen to what i'm doing or having a look at the you know the github uh, page for the code so yeah i had you know a similar experience where i saw that there definitely is a need for it and you know having gone through the educational system myself done programming at uni i know their resources are out of date they're not the best 
Sometimes they're taught by people who, frankly, shouldn't be teaching coding. And then when they finish that, they're obviously going to learn new stuff, new frameworks. And then when you look at those resources, they're not very good. I wonder if your first live stream, like what was it titled at the time? Do you remember? Um, well, I mean, it would have been Handmade Hero Day Zero, I think. Uh, Did you put anything else in the, like, setting up Win32 window or anything more specific like that? Probably, but if you look at what happens, uh, I think it's basically, like, the first N videos all have, you know, multiple hundred thousand views, so it's just, like, people tend to go to the series and watch those first few, um... That's true, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it really matters which one you look at. And also, amusingly, I did a test stream. Uh, there are a couple of test streams I did, which were just like basic intro to C. Those have hundreds of thousands of views, too. Uh, just, like I said, I don't understand it. Uh, I really just, I have chalked it up the entire time to just like, people can't find these materials. They really can't. Um <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. I think that effectively what it boils down to is we are currently living in an era where there has never been so many online uh, or, you know, just so many period resources for education and so few actual good ones. Yes. And like the other, because I've seen many of your videos and you, you know, you show a lot of the whole process. Uh, And, you know, that's what I like to do with mine as well. And I think that's, partly why people like the content because i've seen videos online before i'm sure you've had this issue where you're trying to figure something out you come across a video and like they've skipped half of the steps out and some of those steps you actually needed and they just assumed you already had it set up just because they know how to do it (laughs) well i think it's also an emphasis problem like if you take a look at what kind of educational materials typically are available online they tend to focus on or teach very odd things or things that aren't really very important. So, you know, I mean, you can find educational materials on like, what are the various syntactic constructions in Mm. Python or whatever, or you can find things like, here's how you're supposed to quote unquote, make a class in C plus plus or things like that. And to me, those things are not programming, really. They're kind of, you know, they're related to programming in the sense that you you need to be able to know those things in the same way that you need to know if you're a pianist, what, you know, where are the keys on the keyboard, right? That you're, where are the, where are the keys on the piano that you're trying to, to, t- to touch for any particular note? But like, the act of playing piano is not knowing where middle C was or something like that. It's this completely other process and where you're, you know, you're hearing the music in your head and you're thinking about, you know, how you're going to express it. And should that, you should you hit that note hard or soft and should you, you know, do whatever that I feel like that part is just missing from all the educational materials. And so I think to the extent that Handmade Hero is getting something across, I think it's more than just the whole process part, because I think you're right. But I think it's also more that it has that part. It has the part of playing piano that's actually important to playing piano and not the part that's just like, okay, yeah, there's these keys and you push them and it makes a sound. Most educational materials are the, there are keys and you push them and make a sound. And that just doesn't help people really learn to program. Mm. Yes, they need to know it, but how it's pretty easy to figure that out. Like that's not hard. And most smart people are just going to get that part. 
what's hard to communicate and what's harder to show and what needs to be shown is the other part. What is the act of sitting down to play the piano actually entail? And how do you get better at that? Right. And so that I think is the part that's really crucial. And a lot of educational resources can't or don't capture that. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, the, they, you know, they glance over a lot of stuff. They, keep it very factual or they don't dive that deep into it and they don't link it to other areas and they just keep it very isolated. And don't get me wrong, I think there's a place for resources like that as well. But, you know, when there's only those resources, people are looking for something else. Well, they're more like reference materials, the way yes. I think of them, right? It's like there's a lot of reference material, but reference material doesn't teach you how to do something. It just gives you the information you need when you're like, oh, there's this thing I was already knew I was trying to do, and then I just needed to know exactly what the thing was that does it. Okay, I can find that. But it doesn't have the part where I'm actually going through the process. So a, a very simple example of what this looks like is, you know, on Handmade Hero, it's trivial to open up episodes and just watch me work through some code. Like I try a couple things. I'm like, mm, that doesn't quite right. I didn't like this part of it. Oh, we see, but that's not working very well. Let me reorganize it this way. Okay, let's try that. Okay, that works better. That's what actual programming is. If you're a good programmer, you know how to experiment mutate and select different kinds of code to get to a good solution. No good programmer I know is just like going through some rote structural process where they go like classes look like this. And then I type the private part and then I put the integer here. It's like, no, that does not, <laughs> that is not the way that it works. Right. Um, so capturing the part of the process is actually important, especially to younger or newer programmers where they're like, Oh, I see there's like this fluid process we go through where we look at what's going on and we see what the requirements are. And then we abstract up from that rather than just like expect being expected to sit down and just type in some superstructure just already ready made that solves the problem, which is a very bad way to program. In my opinion, it kind of harkens back to like a nineties era UML diagram kind of thing. Mm. Um, Teaching them the more dynamic method, I think, is very important because that's how good programmers code that, that I've ever seen. Um, the, really, the only exception to that is people who do some, there are some people who do like really heavy math stuff um, and optimization stuff who like study the problem on a notepad for a long time first, working out various things on it. That's possible too. But for the most part, especially for the bulk of the code that's being written, it's it's a much more dynamic process. Oh, yeah. But even that mathematical process that you're saying on paper, it's effectively still that, you know, yeah. trial and error. It, it just happens to be that the trial and error part is mainly on paper. It's like, yes. you know, when you might dry run a bit of code in your head and, you know, figure out something because when you get to a certain level encoded you, you know you can run a few you know scenarios in your head and you think okay that might work that might not work then you go and do it and you might only spend 30 percent coding but it doesn't mean you've only spent that time actually on the process you, you just happens to be the process was in your head or on paper so i mean it, it's effectively the same thing and yeah i totally agree we're like I think in society in general, it's kind of this thing where you can't, you know, failures, you know, look down upon. 
and you can't, you know, tr- you know, experiment a little bit and see, you know, if that doesn't work. Let me try this. Uh, whereas it's like, oh, you know, you, you just have to be perfect. You just have to implement, you know, the class, and it just has to work with the right number of parameters and the right number of functions. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, like you said, that's not how real coding or real creation of anything in real life works. There's a lot of tinkering. It's like when you know Apple makes the iPhone or Samsung makes the Galaxy phones. They don't, you know, look and be like, okay, we need these parts. We're going to put them here, and it just works. <laughs> they have a lot of tinkering that goes on in the R and D department, and the R and D phase, you know, stage of it is kind of missing effectively in you know a lot of tutorials out there. You know, that sort of experimentation process. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you brought up a good point in there, which is that, you know, uh, in fact, I hear this uh, a lot of times. There's a, you know, they even have a term nowadays for this that I had never heard growing up or even in, you know, the first 10 years I was in, you know, professional programming, which is imposter syndrome. I, I've heard this word for so many times. People say it all the time. I, I never heard it till, you know, maybe 15 years ago or something. I don't know. And, uh, when people describe it, I'm like, well, well, that's just programming. Like, it's like, no, like nobody sits down and can just do this stuff. I mean, to this day, when I sit down and I'm working on a new thing, I'm learning. I'm learning about the problem. Like, like when I'm, when I'm there and you know, what, what people are calling imposter syndrome is really just the, I think probably fairly healthy introspection that you're never the perfect programmer. Um, And I've never for a single day ever when sitting down to program thought I knew it all. I I always feel like there's more out there and that the thing, whatever I'm tackling now, I'm learning to tackle that thing. I'm, I'm not good enough to tackle that thing right now. I'm learning to be good enough to tackle it. And the way that I know that I've gotten good enough is when I finally tackle it, right? And that that is really the mentality. And so, you know, I've I've spoken about this before, but when people ask on stream or something about imposter syndrome, I always say the same thing, which is I'm like that's that's just the way it is. You know, it's like there's nothing wrong with you. That's not wrong. Um and that's not bad. I think it's healthy and I think it's true of any hard problem like programming. Programming is not easy. And especially if you're trying something new, which if you're a beginner, most things are going to be new to you. That's how it feels. And to me, it's actually not a problem. It's a it's a nice thing in a way because it means I can be a lifelong learner. You know, I'm I'm never I'm going to die not knowing how to do some programming the best way I can. And to me, that's actually kind of nice because it means I'm. it's never going to be boring. It's always going to be a challenge. And I'm always going to feel like I have the potential to get better, which is more exciting than just kind of sitting here thinking I know everything. Like that's, it's like, why that's not fun. Right. Oh yeah. And like having that bit of doubt in you and questioning stuff is good as well. Obviously you don't want it to the point where you just are frozen and you don't do anything. But having that little bit of question, be like, okay, could I do it better? You know, could I improve on this? Is also a good thing. A, a friend of mine's learning coding right now, and like they keep, you know, saying to me, oh, you know, I can't remember this and I can't remember this. And I'm like, most of those things you will Google. Like, you just need to be 
get into the mindset of because because they're doing you know web programming, HTML, JavaScript, CSS, that sort of stuff. You know, I was like, you just need to get into the process of you know figuring out what the problem is. And then knowing, okay, it's probably like this, and then googling the rest that you need to Google. Because when I was, you know, helping him, you know, do a few things, you know, he saw me Google stuff. He's like, "You googly as well." I was like, "I said to him, I don't remember every CSS, you know, command there is, but I know that it's probably gonna be this." And I'll just use Google as a quick refresher, and I'll try a couple of things from Stack Overflow, and be like, boom, boom Bob's Yonko, it's you know, it's working now. So it's it, it, having that process uh, and making sure that you're constantly, you know, trying and questioning it is definitely good. Because then I think that's a lot of things that junior than young coders lack, and especially ones that are getting into it that don't have a programming, you know, background, like a degree, for example, they do find it difficult and they question it. Uh, and like you were saying, you know, imposter syndrome, they think, you know, am I ever going to be able to get a job in this? I can't even, you know, figure out how to center this item on the header, for example. How am I ever going to get a job? It's like, you're, not only will you figure it out if you keep, you know, learning HTML, CSS, JavaScript, etc., but you'll also just figure out that, part of the process of implementing it is just figuring it out and Googling it. You know, you just need to be capable of being able to just do that. That's the, you know, the most important part, the ability to solve a problem when you don't know how to solve the problem, you know, figuring that, figuring it out. Well, I would add a, another layer to what you just said, actually. I mean, I think all of that is true, and I would also say that there's an additional component to that, which is that things which a new programmer might learn today, which people claim are introductory or easy or however you want to phrase that, such as HTML, CSS, JavaScript, you know, people are like, oh, that's, you know, certainly it's much easier to learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript than it is to learn C. I mean, C has pointers and it's, oh, it's very scary and all these things, right? But like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, oh, it's just it's front-end web scripting. What could be easier? And I think this is very bad messaging because HTML, CSS, and JavaScript are some of the worst design programming environments that have ever been made in history, I would argue. They are massive. It's impossible to remember all of it. Like you said, you have to Google. There's no way, there isn't a person on this planet, I don't think, who could tell you everything that was in all of ECMA, all of CSS, all of HTML, right? Yeah. It's just and, not going to happen. And that's just the front end before you get onto some sort of back end with PHP or Ruby or something oh, sure. like that. But even just the front end, then you have to remember, now wait, all of these things are all completely designed, absolutely scattershot. Like you said, how do you center something? Well, you know, normally the way something like this would work is you would talk about computing an actual centering value and you would put in like the math for how you center. You'd do something like, okay, take the left side and the right side, add them together and divide by two. That gives you the center point. Now subtract half the width of the thing that you want to center. Mm. Now, that's the position of its left side. Something like that is something a beginner can learn, meaning 
I could explain that, I could draw it on a board, and they would get it, and they would remember it. HTML, CSS is like, here's this random collection of tags. They don't have any correspondence to a layout algorithm because no one's ever taught the layout algorithm. Like, no one, there isn't even a page you can go to that concisely explains the series of steps that will actually happen inside a modern layout engine. Why? Because it's so incredibly intricate and ridiculous and has so many special cases and so many crazy lookup rules that even just explaining it would just be the length of the source code. It's that ridiculous. So the only way that you can actually do anything in these languages is go look up someone else who has already black boxed the problem, right? They've already gone through and tried all of these different combinations of tags to find something that will sort of center something. A caveat, there's usually like a star. It's like, oh, but it, it won't work if you don't know the pixel size of your font or something. Like there's, yeah. there's always a caveat too. Or so. it doesn't work in Internet Explorer. Like exactly. <laughs> there's always that big one. Yeah, you got to go to, can I use it, right? And then look and see, well, okay, well, is the thing I looked at even going to work, uh, you know, for the browsers? And so I think one of the problems, at you know, I don't know if this is true because, you know, only a beginner who's starting today can know. But when I look at this, I see a real problem because I'm like, okay, beginners coming in today, they're going to think that this is the easy problem in their struggle. It's like, no, 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 man. Like, that's not the case. This yeah. is really hard. Okay, this is really hard. I could teach you C faster than I could teach you really, if you really wanted to understand how things get laid out in HTML. And so I, it's I less wish, logical almost. Uh, way less logical. Like like you were saying with C and C++, especially let's say if you're making a, you know some sort of menu in a game and you're using, I don't know, QT framework or Cocos 2DX or SFML, like you're saying, you, you can just do a bit of maths and, you know, that's literally how I do I say, you know, X percentage, I want it like this. So regardless of the screen size, it's always centered or it's always anchored left by 10%, all that stuff. But yeah. come to HTML, I mean, it's not real. I mean, I know you can kind of delve into JavaScript and do it. But then, like you said, you have all those browser issues, different yep. browser versions, different screen types, different, you know, orientations, uh, you know, just all that sort of stuff. That can, and then on top of that, JavaScript might not even be potentially enabled or supported on that device. So there's this, uh, then you have to have HTML and CSS. Yeah, it's it's just ridiculous. And so, you know, when when I look at something like that, you know, the the message I would try to send to beginners is like, if that stuff scares you or like like your friend can't remember that stuff, yeah, I mean that's not you, that's not you at all. That's that's this development environment sucks. That's actually what it is. And you are failing because the people who designed this thing are okay. failing, not the other way around. And so I, I really hope that people don't lose heart when they're confronted with that kind of stuff, because uh, it's not good. What they're doing is failing to learn a bad system. And so that's one of the reasons that I like things like I encourage people to learn something like C or something like that first, um, or C sharp or whatever, right? Like there's there's other languages you could pick, but a reasonably designed language first. Uh, and, you know, even JavaScript on its own isn't necessarily bad if you took out the assuming you need to learn the DOM and that kind of stuff, right? If you, if you isolated JavaScript and just, you know, maybe you teach someone to set up a canvas and you teach them to kind of draw stuff on the canvas, it's much more intuitive, right? Uh, and so I do think that like, yeah, 
I really hope people don't get the wrong impression. And I think this this kind of thing compounds nowadays too, because it never stops there. It's like, oh yeah, you're supposed to learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but oh, by the way, you're never actually supposed to use any of it. You're supposed to use React.js instead, or mm. oh, why aren't you learning this new framework or whatever it is? Or like, oh wait, now actually really it's Node.js now. So now you got to learn that and like, let's learn this package manager. And you know, that is, it's just, it's just bad. It's just bad. We've added way too much complexity for very little benefit. And that's just slammed into the face of a beginner, right? It's like, it's this huge complex system that really prevents them from getting mental traction early. And, uh, you know, that to me is very frustrating because in my day, we had a huge advantage. Computers were simpler. There wasn't all that stuff. And you open up a home computer and there was just like basic on it. And Mm. basic has, you know, what, 20 commands or something? (laughs) That's it. And so if you want to learn to program, you start doing that, you feel like you can get it. You know, Uh, it's not that hard. There's not that much to learn. um, And it's fairly straightforward. And so, you know, I I, I do really believe that we have done a disservice by by creating such complex and unwieldy systems. They're not, they haven't ever been simplified. We're just adding more and more all the time. You got to learn to use Git. You got to learn to use Node.js. You got to use a package manager. You got to use this, that, the other thing. 12 different freaking versions of HTML. But, you know, we're really, really, really hurting beginners by forcing this much cognitive complexity on them and then having the gall to tell them that front end is easy or something or that that's a simple thing. It's not. I've heard a lot of people say that I do, you know, C++-based stuff. and And I'm like, you know, give it a go and try it on all the different browser versions. You know, try and actually make a website, not a bit of HTML tinkering. Actually yeah. try and make a live deployed website. And, you know, tell, like you're saying, tell me it's easy after you're dealing with all these, like three, four different languages, all these different frameworks. And, you know, like you're saying, Git and all these other stuff. And, you know, FTP clients and, you know, yeah. cloud environments now as well. You keep telling me it's easy compared to, Obviously, I'm not saying mobile development is easy, but having done mobile development and knowing that once you've you know coded your version up, you package it again. There's some complexities around that, and you know you need to have the right sort of naming conventions with files and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But once you've done it, you package it, you submit it to Apple or Google. You know what you're working on right now is totally isolated to that, and they accept it. It goes, it gets pushed out. And, you know, the downloading and the uh, all that sort of management side gets handled by Apple and Google. Like, the, the, you don't have that really for, you know, websites. I know you got some places like Squarespace, but you can't really do much with those. If you want to actually create a website, then you really have to deal with a lot of, like you're saying, rubbish. Well, and also you can go look at quote unquote professionally done websites. Like you can go to, you know, Gmail or something that is ostensibly, you know, a multi-billion dollar worth of revenue, a quarter company, one of the most famous web companies in the world, whatever, whatever. And there's HTML bugs everywhere. Yes. I mean, you, you can find any, you can go look at any professionally, quote unquote, professionally constructed website and there's bugs everywhere. There's typography bugs everywhere. There's alignment bugs everywhere. There's bugs JavaScript errors. There's it's riddled with bugs. Yeah. So, you know, who are we kidding? 
even the people who are supposedly expert at this can't do it. Yeah. So what is a beginner supposed to do in the face of that? I mean, you know, and here, here we're pretending to tell them uh, that this is this is easy or this is the beginner stuff. Like, no, it's not. Yeah. No one can do it. Yeah, n- you, not the level where, like you say, you have no errors. I remember when I was at university, I did computer games programming, but in the first year, the split was 75% of the modules were regular computer science, 25% was gaming, and then in second and third year, it switched with more of a focus on gaming. And one of the modules in first year was a web design and development module, and I remember the teachers, you know, being so strict on the code, <laughs> being W3 checker, you know, you know, validated. You can't have no errors, no warnings on W3 checker. And, you know, that's how we made our websites. Obviously, it was very basic, but that's how we made our websites. No frameworks as well. just like pure HTML, CSS, and I want to say a bit of JavaScript as well. But it was just pr- really just vanilla code and make sure there was no errors. And I remember the first time I, because I was under the mindset that, Oh, you know, all these big companies, they clearly have their W3 checker stuff, you know, sorted. I remember when I first pumped in, I think, Facebook into it and the amount of errors I got. I was like, I was like, okay, I tried it again. I thought there might be an error. Then I put in Google. Then I put in two or three other big websites. And I was like, they've all got problems. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) some of them are easy fixes by the looks of it. Well, and also, I'm not just talking about errors like compliance errors. I'm talking about like you'll go to a professional, you go you go to some professional website like the, the New York Times. I mean, I don't know. You'll go to some professional website that's like a huge thing that you know that was very expensive, and like they ha- they pop up their dialog box or something for like subscribe now, and it's half of it's off the screen and can't scroll or something. Yeah. Right? You know, this, everyone's seen that, and these are these are huge companies paying millions of dollars for it's their a design agency. They can't even do that. So again, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to tell uh, beginners that this is easy. It's not. This is hard mode because none of this stuff ever works. If if it was easy, there wouldn't be all these obvious bugs everywhere. Uh, you know, because easy means easy, uh, and experts wouldn't screw up. So oh yeah, yeah. I mean, not to belabor the point, but it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, uh, and the fact that. The I know JavaScript's got a bit sort of tighter with the sort of rules in, in recent years, but it's kind of I guess the reason why web you know browsers are so lenient with the code they get from HTML, CSS, and JavaScript that even when things aren't quite the way they want them to be, they still work. Because you know with C plus plus, if you're missing a semicolon, that stuff ain't working. Like right, right. They, it, it's totally off the books. It's not compiling, or, or you know if whatever it is, if you haven't declared a variable, whatever it is, it ain't going to work. Whereas in web, you'll make mistakes and you won't even know you made a mistake just right. because, unless you got some IDE that can, you know, pick it up. Otherwise you're running, you'll be like, Oh, you know, that seems to work. Uh, you know, I've clearly made no errors. Yeah. I mean, well, and JavaScript is, you know, untyped too. So it doesn't help beginners catch mistakes like, hey, that was an integer and you were just trying to use it like a string. Did you really mean to do that? Like, or was that a mistake? It's not going to catch anything like that. So, you know, I mean, I assume that's why people have nowadays are excited about things like TypeScript because it's like, hey, yeah, it turns out that even if you're a beginner, sometimes having typing can be very helpful because it helps you find bugs. And, you know, as an expert, I love typed languages, 
specifically for that reason is because it helps me be a better programmer. It's it's not uh, a thing where I'm thinking that like, oh, yeah, you know, this is something that's that's for experts. It's like, no, I think it's great for beginners, too. So I do think, yeah, everything is wrong with JavaScript, HTML, CSS from a beginner's perspective. It's just hard to learn. And I can totally understand why people would feel like they were failing at it. But, you know, it probably isn't you. That's all I can say. It probably yeah, isn't you. For sure. It's like, it, it, it's just unfortunate set up that way. So Handmade Hero, it's, you know, what keeps it going after all these episodes? I think there's like almost 700 in total now. Um, Just like Habit, there is no reason for it. There really isn't. Uh, the only reason it still goes is because, you know, several hundred people show up every week. Mm-hmm. And uh, and several thousand people watch it still, even the episode. So it's just something we do. It's just a hangout. Um, it's exactly like any other Twitch channel now where it's like, it's just a thing that people like to tune into. And so, I mean, it'll probably go for a very long time until literally everyone is bored with it, I guess, including me. Um, unless I just can't do it anymore because I get tired or something. But... Yeah, I mean, there'll always be more stuff to do. You can always add something to a game engine. You could always, I mean, I could do something else or whatever. So it's not like they'll ever run out of things to do. But uh, really now it's just kind of like a place where people go and we hang out. Uh, and I don't know. It, it, it. I think that's not unusual because that's what Twitch is sort of, right? If you look at what normally happens, mm-hmm. do you really care specifically about, you know, Shroud is going to play a round of PUBG? Like, no, it's just, that's what we're, we're all going to go do right now. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's creates a community. It creates a community after a while and that's really all it is. Yeah. Fair enough. And so after all this time, cause you're working on a game as well with it, why not use an engine off the shelf? Because you, you're creating your own engine as well. And are you using the windows API for that or OpenGL and Vulkan? Um, right. You were talking about Handmade Hero. What yes. is it? Uh, yeah, it uses OpenGL at the moment. Um, that was mostly just because when it was added, uh, there really was, it still appeared as if OpenGL would be a reasonable cross-platform API. And so I wanted people, because people ported Handmade Hero early on um, to like Mac OS and Linux and stuff like that. So I wanted to give them an easy, if I had written it in D3D, especially at that time, there were not things like Proton and whatnot. Um, I wanted them to have an easy time running it on their ports. So I picked OpenGL, not because I particularly like OpenGL, uh, you know, or anything like that, but just because I felt that would make it easy. Nowadays, that's kind of less the case. Um Nowadays, it's kind of just fractured. I mean, I think if it was today, I probably would just do D3D for Windows and be like, you know what? You got to write this in Metal if you want to do it on on Mac or whatever. But that's that's how it works currently. I, I'm not sure. Is that what you meant? Uh, when What are we using? Or Yeah, yeah. Effectively, you know, the reasoning behind it and what you're using. So it sounds like you're a bigger fan of DirectX over OpenGL or, you know, the newer Vulkan. Is, is that correct? And like, which one the why is that um so i think there's a lot of stuff i could say about that and i'm not sure how much of it will be relevant to your listeners uh i'll start with a very simple statement which is i think most of what we're doing now on that front is just wrong 
uh, and probably is a bad idea. So what we what we have now effectively is what I would call the worst of both worlds. So there are substantively only four people who are really supplying GPUs in the desktop space. There's Apple, who b- provides their own GPU that's welded into you know an, an M2 or M1 package. Uh, there's Intel, there's AMD, and there's NVIDIA. That's it, right? There's four. How many 3D APIs are there? Well, there's Metal, there's D3D, 11, and 12, which are actually fairly different. There's Vulkan, there's OpenGL, there's, uh, is that it? So four, I think. Is there one more? Uh, I think I've got them all. That's it, yeah. So we now have four APIs and four hardware vendors. If each hardware vendor just had their own direct API that was just whatever they wanted us to program for their card, it would have been simpler because we would no longer have to like pick a graphics API, then get the graphics API to you know, f- have different like modules for each one that we were going to use because, okay, we got to drive the AMD card a little bit differently or we got to change this for, you know, how, because Intel is slow at X or whatever. So we're going to do this this other way. Oh, this this platform can't do bindless textures. So we're going to do it, this other, right? If we just had like, here's the four APIs or something and you just wrote that little portion for each one or in the case of somebody who doesn't want to do that, they go to GitHub and they download the like graphics API abstraction layer of their choice, any of them, that would probably be a simple world. But instead, we've ended up in this situation where we have four huge graphics APIs. You can't really just use any individual one of them, either because it doesn't exist on all the platforms or it goes through a compatibility layer that doesn't work that well on one of them, or you have to at least make subversions for different variants of things like D311 versus D3D12, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think we've just kind of gotten into a ridiculous state. So I would have preferred now for us to go more towards the same model we use for CPUs. On CPUs, I don't compile to like meta code and then and pick a meta code provider and then have that compile to ARM for Mac or Intel. I just, I compile to two targets. It's not that bad, right? Most of my code can be written generically and it compiles to both in the compiler. But the times when I actually need to do something, I just special case those routines. Okay, this is Neon assembly. This is, you know, X64 assembly or something. This is this is SSE. This is AVX, right? And so at this point, I just, before answering the open Vulcan, you know, whatever question, I'd say, I feel like we've gone off the rails. We've added complexity, but we never actually solved the problem because people still really can't just write to one API, not knowing what graphics cards they're targeting and have it work unless their game is like very, very simple. Like if it's a simple, simple 2D game that, you know, mostly could be expressed with like the fixed function pipeline in OpenGL 1.2 or something, yes. You can just do that and it will work. But if you're actually trying to drive modern graphics hardware to any reasonable percentage of their efficiency, where you're talking about things like including barriers and asynchronous transfers and wanting to use the compute shaders and, you know, you know, unordered access views and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's just, it's not realistic to think that you're just going to write that in 
uh, in, in one API and it's just going to magically work everywhere with no problems. So, you know, that's kind of my broad perspective on it. In terms of which of those things I prefer currently from for what you have to do, yeah, I do prefer D3D. Uh, I prefer D3D 11 if I'm just doing something very straightforward, meaning I don't really have to worry too much about weird graphics features that I'm going to try and micromanage. Uh, and mostly that's because D3D 11 is just, it's not very many calls. You know, you can make, you know, a sum total of 10, 12 calls to, to D3D and pretty much get it what I needed to do. And then I never really have to think about it again. But I do appreciate that I'm kind of an outlier perhaps in that sense. But I do find that to be nice. Things like Vulcan, I don't really see the point of. Um, they were kind of... I would consider bad experiments at trying to make something that's supposedly low level, but which really isn't low level. And so, you know, I find them to be kind of unsatisfyingly giant and unwieldy APIs that don't abstract the correct parts of the problem. So, you know, D3D12 and, you know, more so Vulcan, but a little bit D3D12, I think kind of missed the mark on what they actually abstract, but Vulcan especially. So to me, Vulcan was like a massive missed opportunity uh, because it basically created this whole new standard and this whole new thing that I don't think was particularly useful. Okay, fair enough. So we've handmade here on you know these live streams. You're no, you know, you're creating an engine as well along with the game from scratch. Do you have any plans of commercializing the engine? Um, no, there's no real plans of commercializing anything about it really. Um, so no, it you know the. The engine in Handmade Hero is really just like exactly what it was supposed to be, which is showing the process of how you experiment and come to a conclusion about what your engine architecture should be, right? Um, and so, you know, it's not designed to be commercialized. That wasn't part of the design process. It's not intended to be something that other people are going to use or anything like that. It's just designed to show that process. That was it. So I think if I was going to design a commercial engine, meaning one where I, you know, like like something like a Unity or something like that, uh, you would be putting much more emphasis up front on multiple games running in it. Uh, you know, you would you would say, okay, what are some representative kinds of things that we want to do? Let's start with all of those and make sure that as we kind of like work through our engine design, we're considering that the different trade-offs and needs that those, you know, an RTS versus a platformer versus a first-person shooter or something, right? Okay. Uh, you'd really want to be doing something more like that. And probably if you were doing something like that, I would have, uh, and nowadays I think you could do this pretty easily if you wanted to, uh, collaborate with some people. So take some game designers who uh, want to spend, you know, a few hours a week experimenting with a new engine and have them write the game code as you're doing the engine for feedback so that they can tell you, like, this was hard, this didn't work, I was trying to do this, how can I do that, you know. You'd probably want to do something like that, too. And again, those are things that are just important to do because if you don't consider those things, they're, then the engine's going to be bad for those things. Okay, fair enough. And when is the game coming out, Handmade Hero? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I, I don't know that it will come out in the sense that, you, you know, there might be a time when it's finished, 
Yeah. Uh, but you know, again, it's not, it's not really supposed to be something, you know, there wouldn't be like a launch for it or something like that. Um, like we would do for a normal game, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. So whenever it's done, you know, whenever, whenever it seems like the Twitch show should wind down, probably, um, how far do you think you are through the development of, let's say, version one? You know, a version that you feel like this is a good version for me to call version one or the initial release, and then anything after this will be an update, not still making the game, you know, the initial game. Well, it's kind of hard to say because it, it gets developed very slowly right now. So it's only about an hour and a half a week, sometimes uh, less, because based on how much work I have to do for all the other things I do, uh, I don't necessarily always get time to do it. When I first started where it makes more progress, I streamed five days a week. Uh, and now I only get a chance to do it on Sundays. And that's just because of my schedule. So in terms of episodes, I would say there's probably a good 200 left or so. Okay. Um, and that's mostly going to be game stuff. I'm making a few more changes to the engine right now, just to, uh, simplification. So we decided we didn't need multiple layers of stat. We had it before when you hopped around like the dungeon, you could hop downstairs and upstairs continuously. And uh, my judgment call after we kind of had everything done for engine wise is I was like, okay, let's look at what these pieces are how much are they costing us in terms of code complexity versus how much are we getting? And I just basically decided like 3d, that 3d stacking is not worth it. It costs a lot uh, because we have to do things like have like, like the game has dynamic lighting, for example, like actual dynamic ray trace lighting and things like that. And it just costs a lot of compute time. It costs a lot of extra sort of like logic in how the storage works. Uh, and all this sort of stuff to have those stacks. So I was just like, we're pulling those out. So uh, we will definitely finish pulling those out. And then the engine probably wants a few fixes for sound. Um, I don't think there's anything else. So from then on out, it's basically just like, okay, how much gameplay do you want to put in here? Uh, and, you know, to be completely honest, I'm not a game designer. So uh, it's that's really just going to be, I mean, it's not going to be good. Um, you know, I don't, that, that part of the series I've said many times will not be good. And please don't, please don't try to learn from it because I don't know how to do game design. So, you know, I'm an engine programmer. That's what I do. So I think it's okay to watch me do engine programming, but as far as game design stuff, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a good job. You know, I don't know if things should have, you know, five hit points or three hit points. I don't know if, you know, what should be happening there. So, you know, we'll put enough stuff in that it feels game like, but you know, I that's that's all I can really say about that. That's that's really where it probably the best thing would have been, you know, at some point to hand it to somebody else and say, here, now you do the game part because that way people could learn that. But you know, um, I I don't have someone who I can really do that with who would want to do that, and also you know, I I don't know how easy that is to do. It might be very hard for game designers to do that. Be I'm, I'm not sure. Not being a game designer, I really couldn't say. Okay, fair enough. And do you have any plans on making the engine support mobile or console platforms? 
So I don't think I can support console platforms if I program on stream because they're usually NDA'd. Um, you really wouldn't have to do any work. Uh, it, it'd be very simple to support a console platform uh, from where it is right now. I mean, not doing any work is, is overstating it, but it would be a very simple port to a console. Porting to mobile uh, would be certainly more work, especially because now you're talking about, you know, because like we already have gamepad support, right? So you're yeah. kind of already set up with how that input chain works and everything. We're talking about like, okay, we got to add touch support. You know, you got to, that's like even a game design issue at that point. It's like, okay, how does the touch support work? Uh, what do we get? So, so, you know, mobile development is a big deal. If you're going from something that wasn't mobile to something that is mobile, I think you have to do a lot more work there. So I would definitely not be expecting to do any of that. Console work I would happily do if somebody was like, oh, you can, you know, we give you permission to stream porting this to the PS5 or something, I would do it. Uh, but I don't think I would, I don't anticipate I would ever get that permission. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. I never heard about that, you know, what you're saying there. Obviously, I know there's NDAs, but the, the what part of it would be NDA'd and that you wouldn't be able to live stream it without repercussions? All the code that is specific to that platform so you know right now if you look at the uh, handmade hero source tree you know there's a bunch of files that are labeled win32 yeah these files are the files that create things like the opengl context and the uh window display and they get the keyboard input you know they do all the things that require interfacing with the operating system so if you then want to port to a playstation 5 it's very simple process. You just make the PS5 versions of those files. And in place of the part that got the keyboard input from Windows, you just get the keyboard input from the PlayStation 5. Again, very simple. The problem is, in order to do that, you have to call the PlayStation 5 functions. And those PlayStation 5 functions, as far as I know, are like they're nd 8 mm. meaning I'm not allowed to redistribute anything that shows how those functions work. Now, I could be wrong about that. That's why I said, maybe if I asked Sony, they'd just be like, oh yeah, sure. No, we don't consider that to be part of that NDA you signed. But you know, without that permission, I would never do it because you certainly could be legally liable because obviously someone can reverse engineer the PS5 API if they're looking at a piece of code that calls it exactly to do the things it does. Now they're like, oh yeah, that's what it is, right? Um, and also, if I was streaming the development as it would normally go, I'd be looking at the docs, right? What does that call take? Oh, let me go look at the docs. The docs are all NDA'd, so I can't stream that, right? Um, so I think it's just, I don't know how you would do that without permission. And maybe I would get that permission. I don't know. I could certainly ask at some point, but I, I, I wouldn't anticipate it. Yeah. I mean, I think that would definitely be an interesting one if you did get permission to do it for console and, you know, because there's definitely nothing like that out there. Uh, I I mean, if you probably try to Google PS5 programming tutorial, I've never done it or searched it on YouTube, but I can't imagine there being pretty much anything or much out there. But I think that's because it's NDA. Yes, it it must be. You're probably right in that aspect. People are probably just worried. The reason, if if you typed that in and couldn't find it, I would imagine that's exactly the reason. It's not because nobody wants to teach you how to program a PS5. It's just because I don't think you're allowed to. You know, uh, you, you, and and you know, again, this is true of everybody. Like this is true of Nintendo. It's true of um, Microsoft. And so, 
you know, I don't know. I guess we could go look, but I don't even know if something like SDL, right? Like, you know, a lot of people will just use some pre-existing layer, right? They'll program their game on top of the Simple Direct Media layer or something. I don't even know if there's a PS5 version of that that you can just go get, right? As far as I know, you would have to get that from it through an NDA channel. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I think you're not, I, I don't even think that's the case. I mean, we could look, I don't know. But so, you know, maybe all of my understanding about that is wrong. I don't know. I, I'm not claiming to be an expert on that at all. I'm just saying, I don't know to what extent you can really distribute that stuff currently. No, fair enough. I, I, I like saying the fact that there's not much resources and video that there probably lends credence to the notion that probably pretty tight-lipped, which is definitely the case, and probably you're not allowed to, obviously, create content on it. So Yeah, I mean, that's my assumption anyway, but I mm, again, I really just don't know. Fair enough. So, C or C++, like, what's your preferred one and why? Um, so... C, but I do use the C++ compiler because I do like operator overloading. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess what I would say is I don't really like most of C++. I would say about 95% of it I don't like and don't use. But I do think operator overloading is very important. Um, The particular case in which I think it's extremely important is vector math and uh, SIMD programming. In those two cases, I really don't think you can have a language that doesn't support something that allows you to do those in better notation. Uh, I've written the code both ways. I've written it with and without. And I am I can pretty much say definitively, if you don't have that, I'm really not that interested in your programming language. Not because I might not like other parts of it, but just because that is really a requirement. And I write a lot of code for those two kinds of things. So I use a C++ compiler, but my code basically just looks like C and you will find almost no C++ in it except for operator overloading and uh, sometimes function overloading. So, you know, if you have something like initialize as a function call, I might not go out of my way to add a differentiation like initialize foo and initialize bar. I might just let the overloading take care of the fact that if you pass in a foo, it initializes the foo. And if you pass in a bar, it initializes the bar. But um, that's pretty much it. Uh, Other than that, I don't really like C++. Uh, Sometimes I think I'm misconstrued on this opinion to be saying that I think C, C... as a language is like perfect or something. Uh, It's totally not. There are hundreds of things I would improve about C, but I just don't think C++ improves any of them is the problem. So it's not like I think that, you know, C is, is perfect. So we don't need something else. It's more that I think C++ is bad. It's right. So I just want to be clear on that. Fair enough. And so for people that are looking to make games, what resources would you recommend to those people? I mean, I wish I've, I am asked this question often and I honestly, I just don't know. I really just don't know. Um, like I said at the beginning to bring it back to what we talked about originally, one of the really big problems, one of the reasons I think handmade hero gets any viewers at all is just because there's so little resources for how you actually do game programming. Um, and so I just don't know. I think 
this is, I think it's a big gap because basically you have two sorts of people who are going to come into something like this. Some are just want to use surface level features uh, and they're going to be doing things like using Unity um, or something like that, where they're not really ever going to get any, they're they're not going to be exposed to like any engine details. And so really what they need are explanations of what's going on in the engine that they can understand and use in the context of, you know, C-sharp scripting for Unity or whatever, that sort of thing. And maybe a better example nowadays would be Godot, because I'm assuming Unity is maybe on the way out. But whatever you, whichever one of those you want, like, so let's say Godot. Um, And so what those people need is they need these explanations because, you know, if you come to something like Godot or whatever, and you're trying to make a game, there's all these things you need to know that are kind of engine related, but you don't really need to know how to program an engine. You just kind of need to know things like, oh, you know, if I want to like orient something that points from one place to another place, uh, what is that called? Or what, what do I do with that? And, or how does an engine do that? And how would I get it to do that? Or, you know, I saw a post from somebody on Twitter just recently. It happened to come up on my feed. I think this is a perfect example. They were like, whatever I do, this sword keeps seeming to lag one frame behind my view when I rotate. And they posted a, a, like a movie on Twitter where they, it was like in Unity or something, and they were panning the camera with the mouse, and they had a sword that was being held like in first-person mode, and the sword was always like jittering one frame behind moving the camera, right? So, you know, something like that, if you don't understand engine programming, you'd have like no idea what could be causing that. Those of us who program engines know exactly what's going on there, right? But you'd be like, I don't know. And so people who are programming at that level, what they need is not like a complete like, hey, I could go program an engine level knowledge. What they need is like understanding the idea. It's like, oh, okay. In a frame, things update in different orders. If the camera updates before when you place where the sword is, then they will be synced when they render. If your sword updates before the camera updates, then they won't be or something like that, right? Where do you go to get those kind of informations? I don't know. Um, I mean, I see Freya Holmer's stuff pop up on my feed a lot of times, and and she looks like she's got a lot of stuff that's pretty good. I don't know how much she has, though. But if she's got something, like she put up a great thing about splines, um, there's, there's stuff you can go find where she'll explain stuff like that in Unity, right? Um, maybe there are some other people uh, who are doing that. I don't know. I don't follow those circles. Uh, that closely. So maybe there aren't, but that's one sphere of information. And honestly, I don't really know other than that one recommendation where you go. Um, For learning to program a game engine, I just don't know. And that's for people who are going to go into that industry or who are going to be working on like Unreal Engine projects. So Projects that are more like bigger in scope, they're using a more serious engine like the Unreal Engine, which requires you to know a lot more programming potentially if you really want to like get it to do what it's going to do. Most serious games need several engine programmers to add things to something like an Unreal Engine, even if you're not making your own engine. If you are making your own engine, then obviously they need to make their own engine. Um, and even sometimes people who program in Unity need this. Uh, Plated Studios would be an example. 
They do a tremendous amount of work um, to extend unity, to do what they do. And so those people need resources too, but they need like the hardcore, like here's how you actually program engines resources. And again, I just don't think there's that much available right now. Um, I, I, I don't think anyone would have watched Handmade Hero if there had been other resources available, right? So I really just don't know. Obviously, I'm teaching a class right now. Like one of my other projects is a substack for performance-aware programming. And I think that's a good resource. I've tried really hard to structure it to be you know, easy to learn and show you the core things you need to know to understand performance, like how fast things run. Um, so I'm trying to put out more stuff along those lines. But at the moment, I don't think there's a great resource I can point you to that's like, here's a great resource for learning to program game engines. You know, I just don't know. Fair enough. How important is university to becoming a programmer, in your opinion? Uh, none. It's it's completely irrelevant. Okay. I mean, not even from the perspective of be looking more employable to an employer? I think it might help you get a job. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It might help you get a job, but it's not important to being a programmer. Mm -hmm. I thought you were just asking about the, you know, being able to program. No, no. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, becoming a programmer in terms of a career. And obviously for most people that looks, you know, it's in the form of a job for another company. I agree. If you're just sitting at home doing your own projects, whether they're stream related, whether you're publishing games, whatever it is, but you're not actually having to, you know, put it on your CV, do interviews then it, as long as you can get, get the knowledge which you, which you can get a lot more than you can at university and you'll probably be, even though it's not you know the best online, it's still probably better than what you can get at university. But yeah, I was thinking more just in terms of a career you know, oriented. Um, so for career oriented, I it's really hard to say. Obviously, when I got into the industry, it was a long time ago and nobody cared if you had a college degree. So that was a really good time for programming because most of the people were programmers who knew what they were doing and got into the industry because they knew how to program and they got hired because they knew how to program. Nowadays, um, I think that the process of getting a job as a programmer is completely different because a lot of the jobs are like corpo jobs where you're going to have, you know, uh, effectively HR screening mm -hmm. before you actually talk to somebody who knows programming. And I think that's a real issue because those people are going to screen on things like college degrees, even though I don't think they should, because it doesn't actually correlate with um, whether or not someone's a good programmer. So I do think nowadays the modern reality is that you may need that. I don't really know, but my understanding is, yes, to get by the HR part, you may need to have a college degree. And that's, again, I think really unfortunate and it should not be the case. Um, <clears throat> people throw around the word gatekeeping a lot of times. Uh, and oftentimes I disagree maybe with what they categorize as that. Uh, but I would say that one place that I absolutely think that that term applies and and deserves all of the negative connotations that gatekeeping implies is the HR department. I think having HR departments deal do the sort of first level hiring is probably one of the worst things that has happened to computing ever. Um, these people don't know anything about programming. They don't know what makes a good programmer. And they will be screening out people who would have been very good for a job, but just can't 
say that they have a college degree or say that they have 10 years of C++ experience or whatever nonsense uh, got stuck on like some, you know, intake form. And that's just not what programming is about. It, it, I'm sorry, but it's not. And, you know, uh, you can pick whatever example you want. You know, I can take somebody who's never gone to college and they might be an absolutely amazing programmer. And I can take somebody who has a PhD in CS from Harvard and they can't code anything. So <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't work. Like it's not a litmus test for programming. It just simply isn't. And uh, I wish we wouldn't do that. So again, yeah, it might be an unfortunate necessity for you. And it's really, really sad and ve very deleterious to the industry. I think that it is. That's how I'd say it. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I know a few people that didn't go to university to do programming and they've learned it themselves and they've got programming jobs. My takeaway from speaking to them and some other people as well is that the first job is generally the hardest. Once you've yes. got your first one, then they're less looking at your university or, you know, if you don't have one, you know, the lack of it and more just being like, okay, you know, what did you do on your previous job? How long was you there? So your actual field programming experience. And what I would say is if you don't have the university degree and you haven't got your first job yet, then making sure that you've got a solid portfolio. I think having a solid portfolio is good anyway, but it's even more important if you, on your CV, don't have a university degree. And part of the, one of the ways that you can, you know, get a solid portfolio is to do your own projects put it on github make sure yep. you're updating them as well so you know every week every month you know doing commits or even every day depending on how active you are instead of just putting it on at the end put the three month process on there with proper commits as well there's that also you could potentially do interns free or low paid interns uh or if you know a friend or family that's doing some programming or they got something going on you know help them out because there's nothing wrong with putting on your CV that you got three months of programming experience. If you helped out, you know, somebody that you know doing actual coding, you don't have to have three months of, you know, HTML experience at an actual company that you got paid. It could just be for a project that you didn't get paid and you're just helping someone out. It's still three months of experience. So that's where sprucing up your CV really does, you know, help a lot more. Whereas if you have the university degree, it's not the be-all and end-all, but people are like, oh, okay, they got a degree in programming. I mean, the university is decent as well. So, you know, we'll, let's give this guy a chance. So you've definitely got to focus more on selling yourself. Well, I guess what I would say too is that, yeah, I, what you said about it's, it's about the first job, I think is a really crucial thing to emphasize. I think you're totally right. The... Everything I said about the HR department is a first job thing. Mm. Uh, if you can land a first job, then yes, because then you're just a programmer who's looking to change jobs. And that's yeah. a different thing, right? Also, when you have your first job, you can do things like maybe get them to send you to a conference sometime or start networking with other people because you're in a context where you can reach out to somebody and be like, I'm a network programmer at blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to talk to you about blah or whatever. And, you know, it open if you're the kind of person who will push a little bit on those, you know, sort of networking opportunities, your foot's in the door, right? So, yeah, it's really about that first job. And I think that's where that nasty kind of screening comes in. 
And uh, and I think you're absolutely right. I can say, for example, uh, I have a GitHub repository. Uh, I I worked on a hash function called Meow Hash, uh, and it is a fast hash function for like asset deduplication and things like that. And I don't know how many stars it has. It's three thousand stars, or I don't know, some large number of stars. The, like not hugely large, but large enough. I I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't use GitHub very often, but it's something like that. I just randomly got sent a recruiting letter from Apple that is was clearly sent because they have some kind of a system that looks for stars on GitHub and looks to see who the maintainers are and then contacts them. It was obviously was that um, because. The recruiter obviously didn't know who I was because, uh, you know, all the time I'm complaining. I literally have stated that I do not support Apple platforms because they are kind of antithetical to developer freedom. They lock all their stuff down. They don't allow people to publish what they want. They don't allow people to share code. And so, you know, I... I complain about them all the time. So this was obviously someone who did not know who I was. It was not like they were following me and thought I was a good guy and that they might want to hire me. They clearly just had a thing that would search repos and say, oh, this person has a several starred repo. I'm going to, you know, go ahead. So I do think GitHub, if you're if you're the kind of person who's going to be like an outstanding programmer or something, yeah, you could absolutely just probably get hired off the strength of a GitHub directly. It seems like recruiters are actually even just combing that um, and sending letters cold to people who have repos that are po- that are um, you know sort of uh, popular. The problem with it, I think, is what about just an average programmer? You know, like what if you're not going to stand out and you're not going to make some amazing code on GitHub or something? You know, I feel like just being able to demonstrate that you can code well enough should be enough for you to be able to get an interview at a place. And and this is why I just want to harp again and why I really don't like that CS degree kind of um, gate to get in the door because you shouldn't have to be able to put up an amazing GitHub to, to get hired uh, at your first job. You should be able to just write code okay, you know, like everyone else at their first job, you know, was not great. <laughs> um so I do worry a little bit about that. But yes, absolutely, if you can put up a GitHub, I'm sure that strengthens things. But I just worry because I don't know like what's a novice programmer really supposed to be able to do uh, to get past that barrier. And, and I don't know. I, I really don't. Fair enough. And yeah, for a novice programmer, it is, it's, it's a difficult one because uh, even though a degree might not make you a better coder, it does in so many you know, recruiter's eyes make you more employable. And obviously it's that first job that is the important part. It's doable. I know several people that have done it. And and the thing that I can tell you is they were disciplined. They made sure they educated themselves. They made sure they got to a good level in with programming, probably better than a lot of graduates yeah. in yeah. You know, the similar language and framework that they used. And then they just applied to loads of jobs. I mean, you're going to have to apply to loads you know, at that point versus because let's say if you go to some really prestigious you, you know, university, let's say you go to Harvard, you've got a CS degree from there, you know, you've got a good grade. Like You put down your CV and you're like 21, 22, you, companies and recruiters are going to be like, oh, yo, he went Harvard, he's got a CS degree, he must be good. Exactly. Whereas if you haven't been at 
or to any university, then it's going to be a matter of you know constantly knocking on every recruiter, every company's door, and getting a lot of rejection. So that's what you'll probably have to face a bit more, you know, getting rejection, especially if you've been in some other field prior to it and you've been doing pretty well in that field and you haven't had much rejection in terms of, you know, companies when you've been trying to get a job, you're going to get a lot more most likely. So just be prepared for that. So that's my, you know, takeaway for, for that. Yeah, I mean, that all sounds exactly right to me, but I'd have to caveat it with, I just don't know because I haven't had to go through that mm-hmm. process myself. Um, I obviously have helped out people oftentimes uh, who are trying to go into engine programming because if I see people who are like obviously good at engine programming stuff, I'll like hook them up with people, you know, at companies who are looking for engine programmers. Um I don't know if there's similar people out there who are trying to help people without college degrees who have shown that they're decent programmers get into other kinds of jobs like like Google or Facebook or, you know, a more typical tech industry job by volume Mm -hmm. um, than something like game engine programming, which is very niche. Right. Like there's there's very few people who even know how to do it uh, in the world. So, you know, it's it's kind of a very much smaller thing. But, yeah, you know, my fond hope would be if we could fix this pipeline at some point uh but you know i'm I'm sure that's just a pipe dream but it would be really nice if if people who learn to program and could program okay were on the same footing and you didn't matter whether you went to college or not because it's not valuable i don't think and um you know that's really all i can say about it no yeah and i think with a lot of online education the way it is going now i think maybe if you don't have a degree the future you might be able to no i know you can get certification now but in the future you might be able to relatively easily get something if you're a good coder online uh, in, without having to go through all that university process if you don't want to go through that whether it's the financial side of it whether it's the social side of it whatever it is and get some sort of you know qualification online and recruit be like okay you know they've got that that's a decent enough alternative we're happy with that like I think that might be sort of a middle ground. You know? I would love to see something like that, but I just don't realistically know how it gets created because mm-hmm. who is doing this certification and how? You know, um, that's that's always the trick, yeah. right? Uh, so maybe, yeah. I mean, that would be great, but yeah, I just don't know how realistic that is, and I also worry a lot about that because, like. What is that certification going to look like? Is it actually going to be testing whether people learn a program or is it going to be something ridiculous like, did you put all the members in the private section of a class or something mm-hmm. that's actually completely irrelevant to programming, right? So, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, it's a hard problem. Certification is difficult. Uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't work that great in other industries, to be honest. Uh, and so I don't know that we would necessarily suspect it would work very great here, but yeah, as an alternative to forcing people to go to college, it would obviously be better, I think. So, you know, having to jump through a few hoops to get the certification would certainly be better than ending up $80,000 in debt to go to some university where you didn't really learn anything. Oh yeah, for sure. So uh, talking about that, what's your programming background and your, like, did you go university and like, what's, what's your No, uh, I... So I learned to program when I was very, very young. I learned to program when I was seven years old. Jesus, uh, very young. <laughs> very, very young. Uh, it, it, maybe not that young today, but it was very young at the time because this was uh, in 
in the 19, so it would be 82 or three, somewhere around there. Um, and the reason for that was because my father was a programmer and uh, he had computers that he would take home with him uh, periodically. So basically like uh, he worked for a company called Digital Equipment Corporation and they were the people who made, for example, the PDP-11, right? A famous computer in computing history. They made the VAX. Um, a lot of, if you go read computing history, you know, like the, the hackers at MIT, what were they on? It'd be like a PDP-11 or something, right? Or things like that. So uh, he worked for that company. And as a result, we usually had a computer at home and it was some computer that he took home from work uh, and they would kind of rotate. We had a deck rainbow for a while. We had a vax mate. Um, we had some kind of a workstation thing at some point later on. I don't remember what it was. Was there such a thing as a vax station? I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name. But so when I was seven, he taught me how to program in basic on the deck rainbow. And this was a computer that was running. It was running CPM. We didn't boot it to DOS mode. It had uh, a deck rainbow can dual boot. I don't think I knew what that was at the time, um, but it can. And so it was booted into the CPM uh, side of things and it would uh, had a basic on there and it had micro Emacs. It had some flavor of Emacs that was not the full GNU Emacs. And my dad taught me how to use that. And he taught me how to run a basic program. And that was how I learned to program. And I programmed probably almost every day of my life. I mean, with a few exceptions when I wasn't home or near a computer um, from that day till today. And uh, that is really how I learned to program. The programming that I did when I was younger was fairly stunted. I, I never really learned assembly language because I didn't know what that was. Uh, I don't even know if we ever had an assembler. Maybe we did, uh, but I never really learned that. And that was like a really big disappointment for me when I look back on it, because the computers of that era, unlike today, are very hard to program in if you want to do things like games or something like that without assembly language. Nowadays, it's trivial to write a game without assembly language. But back then, it was almost impossible because computers were so slow and there, there weren't things like graphics APIs that could run at 60 frames a second or something, right? If you weren't programming just assembly language direct. And so, you know, I, I got a lot of practice programming, but I never really got all that good at it. When I was in, um, I guess, a sophomore in high school, uh, I got the chance to go intern at Microsoft. And this was very unusual. Like normally that's not a thing that you can do, but it just so happened that one of my childhood friends, her father was like a VP there, or, you know, like he was like a, a, a not C-suite, but like one below that. Mm -hmm. And he was like, do you want to come do that for the summer? And I was like, sure. Um, and so I went and interned at Microsoft for a summer and I met a lot of people there and I kind of learned like, oh, okay, so here's kind of what programming is if, if you're going to do it at like a company, you know? Uh, and it just so happened that some people there were starting a company and I was like, when I got out of high school, I went and joined them. The company never became anything, but at that point I had met enough people that from there on, I just was able to always find a job. Um, 
so that's really how I ended up getting into programming. And it's also why I say I just don't have any perspective on what it's like to get a job today, because I'm sure none of those things would happen today because programming is much more formalized uh, in terms of the pipeline that people go through. So weird stuff like that probably doesn't happen anymore. But back then it was very common. I mean, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I was uh, younger is I met those people at Microsoft when I went there in my sophomore year of high school, my senior year of high school, one of the people I had met there was like, Hey, I'm going to be in the Boston area because there's this company called looking glass, which I don't know if you remember they're gone. I mean, now. I've heard of it. Yeah. They made like thief, the original game, thief, the dark project. Oh, yeah. They made I mean, uh, Ultimate world. Mm, uh, I remember playing FIFA a lot. Like my dad was a gamer and he got me onto games and FIFA was one of the, original games that I played, Thief, System Shock, those sort of games, that era. Exactly. And that's all Looking Glass. And uh, they are in Cambridge. They're right outside of Boston. Um, they're in Cambridge. And uh, they're right on the edge, like, basically, uh, of of Boston. On the next, They were next to the Alewife Tea Stop, if anyone knows where that is. Um, and so my, my senior year of high school... Uh, this this guy I know from Microsoft, uh, his name is Chris Hecker. He makes a game called Spy Party. If you've ever seen that game, it's on Steam. You can go look at it. Um, at that time, he was working at Microsoft, and he was going to Looking Glass for a few days to help them port Flight Unlimited, which was their flight simulator game they were doing, to Windows because it was DOS only. Remember back in those days, all mm. games were DOS. Windows was not really how you played games. And Microsoft was looking to change that, and Chris was going to help them port it. And I got to go in for the day and hang out at Looking Glass. I think I went two or three days. Uh, my mom let me skip school. I will always uh, remember that she she did that. She gets infinite points from me forever <laughs> for doing that. She let me skip school to go in and help them program that thing for Windows. Uh, and, you know, I met a bunch of people there and I got to see kind of like what a game company was like. And I absolutely loved it. And everyone there was just so smart. And obviously everyone knew way more programming than me. Um, and it was just really kind of rewarding to, to see like, Oh wow. Like there's a place that you go and people work on games all day and look at how exciting all the things are that people were running on their machines. I, that that's when I met Seamus Blackley, uh, who is of course the guy who, uh, was responsible for convincing Microsoft to do the original Xbox, right? Him and a few other people in Microsoft were the were the people who did that. I met him there. I met Doug Church, who of course was one of the main guys who made Ultima Underworld. Um, Dan Schmidt, Art Min. There's a ton of guys there who I met, uh, and they were all fabulous, and it was really fun. And so, you know, those are the kinds of experiences I had programming. I, I just don't know if you get those experiences today. I, I hope you do. It was one of the most rewarding things that's ever happened to me. Um, and honestly, like I think back on those things now and I'm just like, you know, that's it, almost with a bit of sadness, you know, I, I really don't like much about what ended up happening to programming and the industry in general. Um, I really preferred what it was like back then. And I would say nowadays it's, it's a lot less interesting. It's a lot less fun and it's a lot less rewarding for a lot of reasons, but, uh, but that was how I kind of got into it. And, it, you know, for me anyway, that pipeline was really kind of exciting, rewarding and scary and all those things. But thinking about 
what it would have felt like if instead I'd gone to college and then got hired by a recruiter or something. I mean, man, <laughs> how depressing. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's worked out for you and yeah, you, you came about in an era where it was that hacker culture and doing a degree wasn't known in necessary. The, you know, the really wasn't that much out there. So well, it, they're all dropouts. Yes. Chris Hacker, college dropout. Doug Church, college dropout, right? Like, Seamus wasn't. I think he was a high-energy physicist originally. But, you know, so it was just normal, right? It's like people would go to college for, you know, and then they would find, like, oh, there's this programming thing around here that's, you know, I mean, that's a bunch of people dropped out of MIT to program Ultima Under Underworld. That's just how that game got made, right? And so uh, it was just very common, all college dropouts. I later went to work at Rad Game Tools, my favorite place I've ever worked. Um, and Jeff Roberts, the guy who runs it, college dropout, right? That's just, that's who it was. And they were all fantastic uh, and all really good. And so, you know, it, it was, it's kind of really sad to go from that experience. I mean, you have to put yourself in the perspective of a little kid, right? I mean, I don't know anything. I'm stupid. I, I know nothing, right? I don't understand anything. And, you know, I'm not a good programmer or anything. And, you know, you have to understand what that looked like to me at the time. I mean, I don't want to turn your, this podcast into something that's really sour at the end. So I guess I apologize, but it's just, it's really the way I feel about it. So I'm just trying to be honest. That's but, fair enough. Uh, I don't, you know, want people to not be honest on the podcast. So, I mean, if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. So... Talking about that sort of stuff, currently, what do you do as a day job? So as a day job, I do way too many things, I guess is maybe <laughs> how I'd say it. So um, I produce, <clears throat> excuse me, I produce educational materials for my Substack, which yeah. is like basically course material sort of stuff. Again, just trying to fill that sort of void of... Uh, the question you asked, where do I find educational materials for X? Trying to figure out ways to fill that in the short term. Uh, in the long term, I'm working on a bunch of stuff where I'm trying to solve the problem of how do we do that education more broadly? And there's kind of two components to that. One is researching how do we do the things we're doing currently much more simply because I think that's a crucial component. I think a crucial component of teaching is to simplify, meaning instead of teaching people that it takes 100,000 lines of code you know, to display a 2D image or something, we can figure out like, oh, actually we could have done this in 100 lines of code and that's the thing we should be teaching, right? Um, so basically trying to research that's around reducing the complexity, but still getting the same results. And to that end, I do have some very cool stuff that we have not released yet, but that I'm very excited about um, that uh, will come out in the future. And then on top of that, ways in which we can disseminate that educational material better. So Substack is not that great for it. Um, it doesn't have a lot of features that you might want. And so looking to see whether it's possible to ship something that would have the features that I think are necessary for this kind of educational content. And, uh, you know, in addition to that, I, we also do other creative stuff here at Molly Rocket. Obviously, we have a comic 
called Meow the Infinite that Anna draws. Uh, so I work on that as well sometimes. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> that I have to do. But, you know, that's what I do. That's what I do day to day. And then on the weekends when I have time, I stream an episode of Handmade Hero. Uh, so. yeah, okay, fair enough. So you spend a fair bit of time on your own projects and, you know, Molly Rocky and, you know, that sort of stuff then, I guess. Well, it's all my time. Yeah, uh, really. it's all your time. Fair enough. Uh, so, I, yeah. I mean, how long ago did you stop, you know, because it, it sounds like you, you worked at a, a fair few big and influential companies. Like, when did that stop? Like you working at those companies and you just doing your own thing stuff full time? 2013, maybe? Um, or 2014, somewhere around there. Um, I guess I'd say so. Maybe not quite 10 years ago, but maybe eight years ago. Right around, I mean, right around the time that I started streaming Handmade Hero. It was, okay. it was right around there, yeah. Okay. And obviously, you know, what did you do for, you know, money and whatnot? Because if you're not doing a regular job, because I know it's a question I'll get from people that they want to do their own thing, but then, you know, obviously they got bills to pay for, they got family to provide for, all that sort of stuff. So, like, what did you do for the money aspect of it? Or was your stuff just from day one earning money, you know, like the channel and the handmade oh, hero? No, no. And all that stuff? Uh, yeah, well, okay, I guess it. Um, it's hard. that's a much harder question to answer now than it was. Uh, we had separate funding to do sort of what we're doing on a very kind of charitable basis, I would say. So I don't think it's really something I can recommend to anyone because it was kind of a unique situation that because I had worked, you know, in the industry for a while and had uh, good connections and friends and stuff, you know, I, I don't think it's something other people would have access to. Currently, because I do now have a Substack where we do charge for subscriptions. Um, that actually makes way more than enough money to fund all of our expenses. But that was a more recent thing. So uh, prior to that, that wouldn't have been the answer. Nowadays, the answer, like uh, in terms of where our expenses get paid, it's actually there. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know that there's any particular advice I can give to somebody because I'm not a business person. Kind of like there's two things I will never give advice about. One is game design and one is business. I, I'm, I'm very bad at both of those things. If you've ever watched Handmade Hero you know, for a certain amount of time, you know this. Anytime it comes to like, oh, you have to make some game stuff now, I'm like, I don't know how to do that, right? Um, that act of like, we're going to experiment with some gameplay stuff. I just don't know. I always want to go program engine stuff. I'm an engine programmer and... I really think that's just my nature. I, I don't have it in me to do game design kind of work. Uh, other people I've seen are, are naturals at it. They're great at it. You're, you're, you know, I mentioned John Blow before you watch him and he's just a master. It's like, you can tell why he's designed some of the greatest games. Uh, that's not me. But the other thing is business. I'm not a business person. I, I'm really not. And, and people have asked me the kind of question like you're asking me now. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm just a programmer. I'm just a game engine programmer. I think I have good advice to give on things like game engine programming um, or maybe programming architecture more generally. I really just have no advice on things like business and game design. The only thing I can potentially say that might be helpful to your audience is if you just want to look at what makes us money, 
YouTube and Twitch are useless for making money on things like this because the amount of like people who want things like educational programming materials for niche things like game engines, it's just not large enough. There's not enough people, right? You're talking about 10,000 people or something total, and you're not going to get all of them, right? So as a result, if you're looking at something like YouTube, which is all about numbers, it's all about you got to get a million views if you want to get paid pretty well for a video. Well, this is a bad, you don't want to do this, right? At at a minimum, you would want to do something broad. Like you mentioned HTML, CSS, JavaScript. That's where you want to live, right? You want to be doing something that millions of people are trying to get a job in because that's the only way you're going to get millions of views on a video. So I would say that. Twitch is better than YouTube because YouTube, you have to get millions of views. Twitch, if you have a core set of subscribers who care about this content, they will pay for the subscription and that will make you more money. We always made more money on Twitch than YouTube, but both were a pittance. They weren't really a re- like a, an interesting amount of money. Substack makes more than enough money to pay all our expenses every month. The difference in the amount of money it makes is absolutely absurd. It's like, you know, orders of magnitude. It's, it's, it's one order of magnitude. It's actually two orders of magnitude, almost more money. So in terms of like, which platform I would recommend, um, maybe your experience will be very different. But if, if our situation is at all going to translate into your situation, whoever the your is in this sentence, Twitch and YouTube can only be PR for you. They cannot be where you're going to make your money. If you're doing niche programming education, Substack will be where you make your money. That's all I can tell you. And again, I don't know if that's actually true. That's just what was true for us. But um, that is how we experienced it. If you need to do making money on Twitch and YouTube, it has to be less niche. You have to be talking about programming education more broadly to more people. Does that make sense? Yes, I understand what you mean. Fair enough. Okay. Because we've been talking about a lot of you know game development. You've been around that scene for a while. Have you made and released any games in the past? Obviously, I know you're making Handmade Hero, but have you made and released any other games in the past? You mean that I designed the game? Definitely not, no. Or that you've been... Obviously, you've worked at some of those companies that released games. Ignoring those ones... Have you worked on, let's say, a small indie game where, let's say, you've programmed, somebody else has done the art and design, something like that? Uh, Not unless you count the witness. Meaning, so again, uh, anything that is, like, I am not a good game project lead, if that's what you mean. Meaning, like, I am going to say, like, we're making this game that's, you know, you do this thing and whatever. Like, I just don't do that, right? Like, I can only supply engine stuff. Um, So... The only times I've ever worked on that sort of stuff, I supply the engine stuff. For example, at Rad Game Tools, my project, which I did basically completely by myself, so all the design, all the implementation, all the shipping, was the character animation system. It does all the exporting. It does all the um, you know runtime stuff for animating the characters. It does all that stuff. 
And I did that for about five years, and it's used in literally thousands of games. And then the stuff that I've worked on that was actually, like, uh, successful has all been that way. Like, I do some engine stuff for something, but I've never... I I do not know how to, like, design a game. I, I just don't. Uh, I've tried. I tried making a game called Sushi Bar Samurai, and unsurprisingly, it has a complete engine with lots of really great features, and you can play it, but it's just kind of crappy. Like, I don't know why anyone would play it. <laughs> um, and so I think that's just kind of... What I've learned through the course of my career is that, like, I just can't do that. I I can only supply your tech. I think I could team up with a designer. That would probably work very well, where, like, I just supply the tech. Like, they tell me what the tech is that they need, right? But they would have to be the project lead, right? They'd have to say, here's what the game is, and here's what the technology we need, and then I could build that for them. No problem. But I really just don't have the skills... Uh, to do anything other than R&D. I can do your R&D for you um, and I can do it well, but I can't, I really can't take you any further than that, right? I've, I've kind of got to work with somebody who's going to give the game its direction as a game because if left to my own devices, I just will build an engine and that's it. And I, and I, and I, and I couldn't really give you much else, right? Fair enough. Um, what advice would you give to? I'm, I'm asking every to give a lot of advice. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to make content online? Because you've been making content online for many years now. You know it's done well, and you know you've been consistent with it. Like, what things have you learned that you would like to pass on to the next set of people that want to make content? Ooh. Um. You know, I don't really have a lot of advice for that, I guess, other than what I mentioned about the different platforms doing different things uh, and understanding what you're likely to get out of it. Um, You know, I don't really, because I've never really made money as a content creator in that way, um, you know, the Substack, for example, like I said, makes a lot of money, but the other two things don't because they're not high volume enough. Um, I never really thought of that as my job. It's just something I do on the side. So I don't really think I have much advice because if someone's trying to get into that, I think they're probably trying to make money on it. Right. And so if you're trying to make money on it, you're doing a lot of other things. First of all, like I said, you got to pick a target audience, probably better, uh, suited to larger view counts, but you're probably also doing things like trying to get sponsorships or something. Um, and, you know, we get emails about that constantly, obviously, because there's all these people who are trying to, like, you know, put ads on things or sponsor things. And I've just always said no, because it's not, again, it's not a job to me. That part's not a job. So I don't have a lot of advice because I think if you were trying to make money as a streamer or something, you you need to start saying yes to some of those things. And I think that might be where some of the advice would come in is like, who do you say yes to and how do you negotiate and that sort of stuff. So I don't think I'm sorry I really don't have anything. I when I when I said the only thing I'm really qualified to do is build, you know, technology stuff, I I really mean it. Like I I do think I'm good at it. I've pretty much always shipped every technology thing I've ever tried. I've always finished the tech. But I just don't know how to do many other things. I mean, I'm a person who's okay admitting what things you can do and what things you can't do. And you know, my track record on that is a abundantly clear, which is that like 
that's what I can do. I can ship tech. I can ship libraries for things. I can ship engines. I can ship any of that stuff you want. I can't do much else. I'm not a business person. I, I don't think, you know, you'll notice we really don't have like Molly Rocket is like me and one other person. The reason for that is because I don't feel comfortable hiring people because I'm not a business person. I don't want to, if I had 10 people, I would never sleep at night Mm -hmm. because if you're not someone who's comfortable or confident or or who thinks you're a good business person, you can't do that sort of thing. You know, so I would never do that. So I only, I only ever do just what I think I can do. And I try to be realistic about what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. So I'm very happy with what I do right now. And I don't feel like I need to do anything more. So I just don't feel like I have any good advice for people who want to make a business out of things. If you want to know how to structure something in a game engine, I've got advice for you. If you want to know how to do a business, I I really have nothing to say. Fair enough. So you mentioned that you was talking about, you know, hiring people and that's something that, you know, you don't feel comfortable doing. Have, Have you tried expanding the team out? And hiring people, is that something you've tried or is that just something you just said no to? Oh, it, like I said, it's just something I said no to because I just don't feel comfortable enough with business mm-hmm. side of things to have that kind of a burn rate. You know, when when you have to figure out how you're going to make twenty or $30,000 a month. To pay uh, okay. everyone, yes. Like, okay, I'm, I'm, I can understand that number. When you have to make $300,000 a month, I just, I can't, I, I don't know mm. how I would do that, right? Um, like, like in terms of, of believing in myself that I could build a sustainable business that could do that. It's just, like I said, it's not that I, I'm not the kind of person who just thinks that they're good at everything. I think I'm good at very specific things and outside of those specific things, I don't think I really am any any good at them. And so I've always just kept things very small for that reason, because I just don't think you know, I'm willing to try little things. Like I said, I've tried some game design. I think I'm not very good at it. I'm willing to try a little business stuff, right? <clears throat> but until I see any evidence that I'm good at something, I'm not going to go try to do it big, right? And so having me and one other person, that feels good. It feels about right. And we can do small things. You know, we can make the Substack, We can make our comic. And like I said, we've got some other stuff coming that I think is really cool. And you know, that's enough for me. I don't need to make Google, you know, I don't need to, I, you know, I, I love Elon Musk. I think what he's done is amazing. Attracting talent and creating companies to put rockets in outer space. It's amazing. And I think it's wonderful. And it's something that in my wildest dreams, I could never accomplish ever. It's not even a question of learning. I just, it's not in my DNA. So I just want to do the research. I just want to do the R and D and be happy with that. And that's for me, that's good enough. Fair enough. I mean, you made it work. You're enjoying it and you're honest to yourself about it. Cause there's definitely people that aren't so honest about, you know, about stuff and they feel like they have to, you know, create, you know, do this, this and this because, you know, that's what society expects of them. That's what, they've imposed on themselves because of you know what they've seen on social media you know on the news in movies in tv shows so yeah it's good that you know you have an understanding of what makes you happy what you're good at and you're focusing on those things so yeah that's definitely a good way of approaching life in general i'd say uh, me so- too because i mean you know i, I don't want to dissuade anyone 
who's a very ambitious person mm-hmm. who wants to do great things. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying for me, I understand my limitations and I'm old enough that I've had enough experience that I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I know what I'm good at doing, you know? And uh, uh, if I was unhappy with that, you know, if I thought that somehow I should or could do more, then maybe I maybe I would be, you know, push myself into other disciplines. But one of the things about, you know, coding and architecture and that sort of stuff that I enjoy and I do think I'm good at is there's so much unsolved territory there. You know, there's so much I can be working on. So I think that's part of it too, is there's so much extra work I can do there. Why, you know, why push myself into those other disciplines that I'm just not naturally good at? Other people will do them, you know? Other people will do the game designs. If I release some tech or make some new discoveries or something like that, other people can do those the, the game designs. And other people will start the businesses because those people are good at those things, right? And so I don't really see any need either because I can participate more broadly uh, in what's going on, but just not by doing those things, which I'm not naturally suited for. Yeah, I mean, at least you're honest about it. I mean, that's, that's definitely the <laughs> yeah. most important part of it. And I've always has been, I, I've been asked multiple times about business stuff on Handmade Hero, and I always say yeah. the exact same thing. I'm like, I don't know. You Not know? my jam. You, you want to know about rendering some obscure thing in exactly. the DirectX <laughs> cases, your man. Otherwise, you know, go ask someone else. At, that is exactly it. It's like, I can only answer what I can answer. And I've known people who are good at business. Jeff Roberts, the guy who ran Rad Game Tools, who founded it. Absolutely amazing at it. Natural businessman. Um you know, did one of the most remarkable things, which is made a profitable middleware company for mm. 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. Wait a minute. 30 yeah. years. Almost all middleware companies fail or get bought, bought for a very small sum of money and absorbed into another company. But, you know, here is a guy who founded this company. It's like, you know, grew to maybe a fairly small number, 10, 15 people made obscene amounts of money every year licensing middleware. And then ended up ended up getting bought by Epic 30 years later, right? I mean, nobody does that. Middleware companies are flash in the pan and they go out of business almost immediately. Yeah. Or they're bought out a few years into it because they've they've got something yep. about it and some big companies like, you know, we want to snap them up before they become big, or more importantly, before a competitor, you know, has it and then they copyright the stuff. But usually they're bought out in not a very favorable way. Yes. Right? They're not like bought out for billions of dollars. They're bought out like basically for debt or something right they don't it's not like a huge deal they're just kind of like yeah we kind of had to sell this company so we we kind of found you know intel would take a deal with us that wasn't that bad and we all made something off it, so it's fine right yeah um it's not like oh you know instagram and we got bought for two billion dollars or whatever like you know yeah. or 10 billion i don't remember what they bought for but it doesn't matter point being um so you know someone like that i'm like that's that's who you want to ask for business advice right not me I, I don't know anything. I haven't mm. made successful businesses. I mean, I don't know anything about that sort of thing. And I don't even aspire to know it. So you're asking advice from somebody who not only doesn't have a track record in that uh, space, but also doesn't even want one. So, you know, it's just, you gotta be, uh, you gotta be sort of realistic about who you're getting your advice from here. Right. Um, ask Elon Musk for business advice, not me. Yeah, well, fair enough. So, what IDE and overall development setup do you use? 
Oh, um, I use a custom editor now uh, that I made, and I use basically a custom build. Like, so the only thing that I use that's not custom is Remedy BG, which is a debugger that was made um, by George Menhorn. I he's I don't know just. Woke up one morning and decided to do, do the whole world and the incredible favor of making a really, really fast debugger that was pleasant to use, which, you know, I had been wanting for many years. And so I used that. It's great. It's the best 50 bucks. I think it's not, it doesn't even cost 50 bucks, but I paid 50 bucks because you could pay more because at the time I bought it. I bought it right out of the gate. It didn't have much in it, but I was like, I want to support this project. Nowadays, I mean, it should be 500 bucks. I mean, I would pay 500 bucks for it. It's great. And I use it all the time. And then I use a compiler, obviously, that I didn't write. I use both MSVC and Clang because they both work pretty well on Windows. Clang used to be more like usable. It's gotten kind of much worse now. It has a lot of code gen bugs a lot of times I find now, and it also is getting very slow to compile. So I've kind of reverted back to using MSVC most of the time, uh, but I still compile with Clang for testing and purposes and stuff like that fairly frequently. Um, But that's it. So custom editor, custom build tool. And to be fair, just to be clear what the build tool is, it's not really a build tool. I don't really believe in build tools. Uh, All it is is something that launches many copies of of MSVC simultaneously because like the way that I like to do things is I like to build all my targets at once. So like I like to build like the, you know, SSE AVX to AVX 512 uh, debug and release versions all at once so that I always have all the XZs instead of like which build are you doing now. And I found that I could make that happen much faster by just running many copies of MSVC simultaneously. So I basically just made a little utility that does that. But that's it. Otherwise, all it's doing is just calling CL with, you know, I, I use what's called a single translation unit build, which is basically where you just have a CPP file that includes all your other CPP f- files so that they all get built as one translation unit. So really, it's, it's just that. There is no build process like CMake or anything like that. Okay, fair enough. And Mac, Windows, or Linux, and why? I know um, you don't like offering Mac's going to be at the bottom from the sounds Mac, of it. Mac, I, do, I, because I fundamentally don't like their company and what they do. Uh, that's, so it's not a statement about MacOS, the OS, meaning I am not suggesting that there's something in, inherently horrible about MacOS, the design of MacOS. Um, it's just I really don't like their draconian policies. I don't like the fact that they think that it's acceptable to charge people $90 a month for the privilege of programming on their platform. I find it offensive, if anything. Um, it's against sort of what I consider to be the ethical and moral framework that I would put programming in, which is that in order to, if in much the same way that people have opinions about a free society, I have opinions about the a programming you know, how that applies to programming and being able to build an executable and distribute it to the world without an intermediary, I would consider to be crucial. So the fact that Apple continues to take more and more steps to prevent that from happening, even on desktop now, it used to be only on their phones, uh, but now it's kind of metastasized to the desktop where you have to like 
the user has to like turn off gatekeeper or something just to run an executable. Um, I just find those sorts of things to be very offensive. So I refuse to support their platforms. That's it. Linux versus Windows. Um, Windows is a much more comfortable development environment for the kinds of code that I write. The reason for that is because the debuggers on Windows are much better. The human factors for debugging are much better. Uh, again, Remedy BG is a big part of that. doesn't exist on Linux, unfortunately. But even without that, like Visual Studio is just a better debugger than any of the debuggers you can get on Linux. I know there's people who are probably like, you know, screaming right now that I'm saying that, but like, no, seriously, that's just the case. In terms of your daily debugger, Linux has really had a problem ever competing with Windows on that side of things. Same thing with a couple other things like audio and software compat, like, you know, running Photoshop, running Reaper, having audio work properly. Windows is just generally better at those things than Linux. So because we are very AV heavy, very game heavy, working on Windows is kind of what I've been doing. Asterisk. I would prefer something like Linux because Windows has steadily been getting worse. With every revision since 7, I would say, it's gotten more and more difficult to use Windows because they keep making it worse. Linux has not gotten much better. The debuggers still aren't good on Linux and audio is still kind of messed up and software compat is still not great. But here's the thing. I've often said this. I don't know if Linux will ever be good enough at being my daily desktop environment to be to beat Windows 7, but by Windows 15, it might be because Windows will have gotten bad enough that all of the things that I'm saying are not good enough on Linux. Well, they won't be good enough on Windows anymore either. So Microsoft will probably succeed in making Windows bad enough that the cost of switching to Linux for me will basically become zero. And then I will, if that makes sense. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so currently my perspective on those platforms is that like I would like to switch to Linux. If I could get a good debugger on Linux, that would probably be enough. So I'm always watching. I periodically go to Linux because I'm familiar with Linux, so I know how to use it and I have a Linux machine. I periodically test their debuggers to see if any of them have gotten good enough. And the answer is always no. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the day is coming. The day when I switch to Linux, it may still be a few years out, but I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think it might it might arrive. Might arrive soon. I mean, Steam, Steam Deck is helping this, by the way. It is, because, yes. <laughs> right? Because Steam Deck the kind of programming I do is game programmer centric. Steam Deck is making it a lot more attractive for game developers to think about Linux. And as more game developers use Linux or target Linux, these things improve, right? Having a major platform player say Linux is for gaming, it helps a lot. So thank you, Steam. Um, thank you, Valve, for doing that because I don't know that that will mean that it, it becomes the, the thing we all use, but I think it's it's very likely that if Linux does become the platform that we all use and that I can switch to, I think Steam will have a, have had a big contribution there. Oh yeah, for sure. Because you know, I play my Steam Deck often. It's one of my favorite sort of you know consoles. I mean, I consider it a console that I've got, and it's just how well things work on there. Even the games that aren't you know don't have a yeah. Linux version, and there's there's so many of them. 
Uh, you know, and I'm playing emulators on there, whether they're Linux based or not. I'm playing games on there through Proton. And I was like, they're just working so well. Yep. And because I've tried to switch to Linux, or like every couple of years or so, I'll try and do a, a move to Linux. I'll still have my main machine. I'll leave a dual boot or install it on some other machine. And I'll try and do a switch, and then there'll be something. It's usually just you know general Linux problems where you know drivers yep. don't work properly, exactly. or then they they just they just stop. Like you get it set up, and it's all working, and then the next time you turn it on, for some reason your screen is at some really low resolution. Yep. The dr- yep. NVIDIA drivers disappeared for some reason and audio messed up. And I'm like, I didn't even do anything. Like, no hardware change, no nothing, no update. And you just decided to get messed up. And I'm using, you know, a like a mainstream distro. I'm not using some custom, you know, you know, under the table distro that probably shouldn't work. It's a mainstream one. I'm using Ubuntu. I'm using one of the other ones and you're still messing up. And it's like, uh, I'm just going to switch back to windows, but especially with pop OS as well. Like pop OS is pretty refined and I haven't done much gaming on Linux in recent years outside of the steam deck, but I'm thinking about trying to do some more on it because with all the proton work, it's, it's looking a lot more practical to be able to do it. Well, and I think, you know, it it works both ways because if the more people start thinking like, oh, okay, well, I, I want to do Steam Deck work, so, you know, I should probably run a Linux here or something or I test it on Linux or whatever. The more people are using it daily, the more bugs get reported for things like this, the more NVIDIA cares about making it work, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, you know, it can potentially, if we're really lucky, it forms a virtuous cycle where these bugs start to get ironed out, whereas they weren't before because no one cared because all the people running Linux are running it who are used to that kind of thing Mm. and aren't having these kind of problems, right? Because, you know, I mean, you always see this disconnect. Everything you just said is exactly my experience with Linux. But if you try to tell that to somebody who uses Linux, they just, they seem like they don't even know what you're talking about, right? Yeah, Um, to them, like to us using Windows machine is we press the power button a few seconds later or a minute later, it boots up and it works. To them, the same process is running 20 different commands, setting up drivers, and it's like, uh, they say, yeah, there's no problem with it, even though they are doing extra steps, but because they've, they're have so used to doing it and they're so good at it now, like exactly. that's the other thing you, you have to, and that's another thing I know uh, for myself, I say to myself, I need to get better at it, like I'm, I'm more than good enough with Bash and, you know, just general Linux. But I know if I was a lot better, these problems I would probably overlook. But then I'm like, I don't want to have to spend time, like, hours, you know, in total every few weeks, you know, cumulatively, just to fix stuff that, frankly, is fixed, whether if you use Windows and then if if you use Mac. Like, things just, you know, work. It worked well enough with Windows. I mean, Windows has its has its issues, but their issues aren't that common. Like, I've got a Linux machine, and every time I turn, like a secondary one, if I want to do a few tutorials on it, for example, every time I turn it on, I'm, like, praying to God that, it, like, it's going to work for the half an hour I need it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I turn it on, and I'm like, why is OBS 
just disappear now. It's yep. it's not even there anymore. Like, I've had issues when OBS isn't appearing and like it's uninstalled it but not fully uninstalled it, so it won't let me reinstall it. And I'm like, like, what is going on here? And I just don't want that, especially when I want to... It, it, it's like the debate of Windows gaming versus console gaming. Console gaming, you turn it on, it just works. You don't deal with drivers. Maybe a few updates, right. but that's it. Right. And then Windows is the console uh, equivalent of desktops when you're comparing it to Linux. You yeah. turn it on, you got some updates, you got some drivers, but you know that chances are the drivers for your graphics card are going to be enabled if you turn it on a week later. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, it's, like I said, Windows still has a huge edge in terms of like, it's likely that the thing you're doing is just going to work. Yes. But like I said, the caveat there is it's getting worse. And that's the thing that I think is interesting is that Linux might not get better, but Windows is definitely getting worse. And so at some point, I kind of expect these things to cross over. Like at some point, you know, if Windows Update gets any more onerous of just rebooting your machine randomly that you can't turn off and and like, oh, you got to go set the group settings to prevent it from, from rebooting your machine without asking you and all these other things. Like, those are Linux-style things all of a sudden. Like, you got to know all these weird, like, setting stuff to go change to make sure that the blah doesn't do blah or, like, you got to do this to make sure that Cortana doesn't pop up when you do the thing. You know, it's... The more Windows keeps do going down its incompetent road, the more that it will basically just be the same as Linux where you have to know all this stuff to get anything to work. And so if they continue that downward spiral, which they sure seem to be doing, then at some point it won't matter to me anymore because if I have to learn all these tweaky things anyway, I might as well just learn the Linux tweaky things because then at least I'm not paying Microsoft $200 for the privilege of me having to spend all my time fixing their freaking OS. Yeah, um, it, it's definitely an inter interesting one. And Valve, with obviously they tried it with the Steam machines a few years back, they didn't, you know, work out. But they that definitely paved the way for their knowledge with the Steam Deck. You can definitely tell that like, in the hardware and Steam Deck. I mean, what you were saying probably ten minutes ago is, you know, is on point that these manufacturers, you know, or you know, the driver and the software manufacturers that otherwise would have left things broken and did for many years on Linux are actually fixing things now because yes. there's actually a good... And if it, even if it's not just them, because even though Valve have basically said they're not doing Steam Deck exclusive games, which is not a bad approach, to be fair, there's still that, you know, it's Steam Deck verified. And that's i think the developers some of the bigger developers i i don't i have never not spoken to any of them but maybe you have but i think they are having this discussion of we've got playstation we've got xbox we've got compute pc but it's not just windows anymore or you know windows 10 11 and nvidia and amd it is steam deck as well and it's probably not that much effort to make sure it's Steam Deck, you know, verified, because the sales that they would have otherwise be getting from Steam, some people are like, oh, you know, it's Steam Deck verified. I definitely want it now, because not only can I play it on PC, I can play it on Steam Deck. You know, people that may not have 
played it on PC because they was a console gamer, but now they can play, you know, Hogwarts Legacy on the go, for example. Yes, and I think that, again, it creates an excitement. More than anything, it creates an excitement around a Linux platform, kind of for the first time. Because when you see positive customer interaction where people are saying they like their Steam Deck, they're enjoying taking their Steam Deck on the go, it doesn't even, at this point, almost matter what the numbers are, because I don't know what they are. But like, it almost doesn't matter. It's that there's there's some hype. There's some positive interest in Linux for gaming, which there really has never been. There's never really been a time when a publisher might care, right, about what was happening on Linux. But now there is. And again, it has the potential to start a virtuous cycle where if people are, if that momentum can build, people are excited about this. They're excited about having the Steam Deck. They're excited about getting their game on Steam Deck. That's all very good for Linux in the long run, I think. Oh, yeah. And I think what might potentially happen is if, you know, Linux fix or the manufacturers in conjunction with, you know, the people that maintain the Linux distros and Linux in general, if they fix a lot of the, you know, minor issues with it, I think you might end up seeing platforms and systems, you know, essentially game consoles based on the Linux platform that you connect to your, you know, your TV. You know, like how you have the NVIDIA Shield, for example. Imagine a, a more Linux as Android, a more, you know, general Linux heavy version of, you know, NVIDIA Shield, but it's more robust and it has a slight, you know, more TV interface. But, you know, it has, you know, it has really good hardware and that hard, you know, the hardware is more like Steam Deck, maybe a bit better because, you know, the, it's a bigger box without a screen and without a controller but you can play your games with proton on your tv and that box is 500 quid or 400 quid for example Uh, you know obviously more expensive than a shield and apple tv but when you've got the value proposition of being able to play maybe not all of the steam games but the vast majority of them and maybe you've already got a Steam library. The, again, that's another powerful one. It, you know, if you said to someone, you can buy, you know, PlayStation 6 when it comes out, you know, with whatever games are going to come out there and may or may not have backwards compatibility because, you know, how backwards compatibility is these days. I think they're going to continue with it, but, you know, how it is. Or you can buy this console because consoles are getting at the five hundred pound price point anyway now, or five, yeah, you know, five hundred dollars plus. So it's that price isn't that crazy for a gaming system. Or you can no. buy this low box. You know, it can do your Netflix, your Disney Plus, all that stuff really, really well. And you've got all your, you know, your two hundred games on Steam. Most like ninety five percent of them work out the box. And they look better than your console potentially as well. Well, and, you know, I'll be honest. uh, The day that Steam, like, integrates Netflix, HBO, like, the day that that stuff that normally only shows up on, you know, a PlayStation or a Roku or whatever shows up on Steam, I don't want to be Sony or Microsoft that day, (laughs) right? Because, like, if you think about it, I mean... All of us gamers, we still buy things like PlayStations or Microsoft or Xboxes specifically because we can't just get a Steam thing that would also do our home entertainment. But like, 
I mean, there's a pretty clear path from where I'm sitting right now to that, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I hope they do it because I like Valve. I've always loved Valve. I like the people. I'm friends with the folks there too. And I think they've been really great for the game industry. I know there's some people who complain about stuff they do, but I don't. I think, you know, when you look at, when you look at the difference between all of the evil things Valve could have done with their mm-hmm. position versus what they've actually done, they've been incredibly, incredibly benevolent. They, they've made so many decisions where they could have made a much more selfish or self-serving decision. And instead, they have remained very open and always allowed people access to their platform. And, you know, I just, I really like what they've done with it. And I would way rather have a Valve console than a Sony or Microsoft console at this point. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I love my PlayStation 5, not complaining. Um, I'm just saying, like, I, I love what Valve has done and I love how open their platform is. Oh, yeah, for sure. And again, that value proposition of, you know, just having all those old games. It's like, if I build a new computer today, and let's say the last time I built a computer was 10 years ago, for example, look, I'm not building a new one and on the assumption that all my old games aren't going to work. Like, I know, like, it's just the given thing. I build a new computer, I install Windows on it, maybe it's a newer version of Windows, for example, but my Steam library, for the most part, will work and obviously you know you got epic library as well you got origin all those other you know libraries wherever they are like you know that they're gonna work but for again you might have the other little issue that might be os related but they're they're all pretty much gonna work like that is such a powerful thing and then like the the potential for that to come to console because we've seen that as a gaming community in the steam deck now to grab that download the game and maybe you need to do a bit of configuration but then the community have config you know controller layouts that you can just download and you know it works pretty well and you know after experiencing that i would love the idea of having a steam machine that really works even if it's a bit more than four or five hundred pound let's say it's seven eight hundred pound but it runns really well at 1080 and 1440 like even if you don't do 4k it's not the end of the world compared to how expensive hot like computer hardware is now just graphics cards like even if it is pushing like the seven eight hundred pound mark that's still a huge value proposition for a lot of even just pc gamers out there so i think that all it's exciting times and i'm happy that we've got this now. Like Valve, again, I, I'm pretty, you know, similar to you in with my opinion on Valve. I love Valve. I love the stuff they do. The only gripe I have is I again I wish they would release a new Half-Life, excluding obviously <laughs> Alex. But I'm grateful at the same time they have not rinsed it like Ubisoft with Assassin's Creed, you know, you, you know what Infinity Ward and Sledgehammer and whatnot with Call of Duty. Again, I think the COD games have been overall better uh, than excluding Black Ops 4, which was online only. Uh, excluding that one, they've been better than, let's say, the Assassin's Creed games, even though they're coming out literally every year. But I know the memories I have of Half-Life and the memories that everyone, I would say, pretty much has of Half-Life that has played it is so positive and so profound. You, you don't get that from these other games like they, they could have easily pumped out 
game after game after yes. game. And when they, you know, when they're the gatekeepers to PC gaming, which they are, you know, the Epic can try and do what they they can try and do what they want with Epic Launcher. It's not really gone the way you know Steam has. Origin definitely didn't. Ubisoft yeah, Origin, Uplay or whatever it is, you know, hasn't even. I mean, it's so funny that some of them use sell the game on steam just to launch their own launcher yes, yes. Like, it, like that's how little they think of their own launcher you like you don't see steam you know release it i mean they don't really release games but yeah i can't imagine steam releasing half-life on the origin store just for yeah. it to launch steam yeah <laughs> like, I, that I mean, would absolutely. Happen. And, and i think you know that uh, you can complain all you want about valve not shipping more games but like you just said, it's because they have some integrity. They could they could ship a really crappy Half-Life 3 next year if they wanted to, but they're not going to do that, right? Because they have some integrity. That, that company is not going to ship Half-Life 3 if it sucks. Like, I don't think that's something they would do. And so I think you have to give them a lot of credit for that. They probably haven't shipped Half-Life 3 specifically because they haven't come up with something yet that they think is good enough to be called Half-Life 3. So, so good on them. You know, because, you, you know, the, like you said, these other companies, they just run their franchise into the ground. And I think it's cool that Valve didn't do that. They said, well, if we're going to make another Half-Life 3, it's going to be good. And we're not going to oh. ship something crappy just to the side. Oh, yeah. And, like, from what I've heard, they've, you know, had plenty of projects that were not far from completion. So it's not even like they didn't get past the drawing board. They clearly spent money got to a point where you probably you know, probably pretty fun but there's like for whatever reason just does not gel the way they really wanted to and, and i respect that i really respect yeah. that you know because i mean they have the money because of steam and stuff to not to not ship a crappy game mm. and they and that's the decision they made right they could have easily just been like ah we'd rather have the money so let's ship the crappy game it's like yeah you know so you know i like i like the fact that they i i think in general even if one of their games i mean they've shipped games that maybe haven't been that successful i think they shipped a card game that wasn't that they successful they did yeah i um, think it began with an a or something i remember yeah, the one but like i'm pretty sure that nobody there thought it was crappy like i don't think that, like I think they probably thought it was good, right? And it just didn't happen to succeed. Yeah. I don't think they ship things that at least somebody there doesn't think is a good, you know, is good. Uh, so I think that's cool. Yeah. I mean, if you was offered a job at Valve, would you go and work there? You know, drop what you're doing? I, I, I was. I actually did oh. decided not to go work there. Um, I, I would work there, sure. Uh, I just have had the option to kind of do things on my own. So I have, um, I like the people there. Like I said, I have a lot of respect for them. Uh, and you know, uh, so I would have no problem working there. Uh, for me, I mean, maybe they would have a problem with me, you know, maybe they won't <laughs> like me, but, but I, you know, I, I will have no problem with them. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I just have been fortunate enough that I haven't had to do, uh, that sort of thing where I'm just going to go work on something for a while now. I've had the option to not do that. And so that's generally what I do. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think they're, like I said, every, every company has plenty of things that you can criticize. So I understand criticisms that 
either former employees or people who look at Valve from the outside or whatever, I understand what they're criticizing. But you have to take criticism with the totality of what that company does. And I think that there's no way to have a fair perspective on Valve that doesn't at least admit two things. One, they've been tremendously successful for many years. And two, that on the whole, they did that without doing a lot of dirty stuff. They are they just have a lot more integrity than what Apple or Google or somebody does with their sort of monopoly position, right? And so I, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Valve. I don't think I've ever said anything publicly negative about Valve ever. And there's a reason for that. And it's because I really just think they are one of the few companies that has a lot of integrity. And I'm not trying to blunt other people's criticism or tell them they're wrong or anything like that. I'm just trying to say that when you consider companies as a whole, I really respect what they have done and I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. And, and I do. And I have tremendous amount of respect for Gabe. I think a lot of that comes from Gabe. Um, you know, I've talked to him before about stuff and he is a much more calm and benevolent person than someone like me. He, I, I, I'm always struck by how he just seems to be able to take things in stride and not make rash decisions and stuff. I, I really think that that's a remarkable uh, quality that he has. So I have tremendous amount of respect for him. I have tremendous amount of respect for that company. And like I said, I, a lot of my friends work there. So obviously I respect them as well. But it's just, there's a reason you've never heard. I complain about a lot of companies. I complain about <laughs> Apple all the time. I complain about Google all the time. There's a reason you never hear me complain about Valve. And it's because I, you know, I, I just have a lot of respect for them. I think they've done really good work. And, you know, um, I'm happy that they are the people who are in charge of the standard store. Uh, oh yeah, and they definitely have a you know respectable company. I was just thinking it'd be so awesome to have you know you know someone like Gabe on the podcast maybe soon. So why? Did, oh, yeah, that would be great. I'd listen I mean, to that podcast. I'd love to hear. Him. I mean, I, I, it, it's one of those episodes. I think I would listen to multiple times as well. Uh, you never know. I, I, I might try and pop him a message. You never know. <laughs> so why he did you just say reply. No? He does that. You know? Yeah, I, I I know he does. That's the reason I'm thinking. You never know. He might actually say yeah. Yep. So yep. why did you turn down the valve offer? Um, so it was very, very early. Um, and you know, I had, uh, so essentially like it was probably just a bad decision, I guess. I mean, it didn't end up being a bad decision because through that decision, I ended up working at rad eventually. And I might mm -hmm. not have, if I had gone to work at valve and I really am glad I worked at rad because that was the best place that I've ever worked by far. Like I said, um, but basically, I had the option to work at a couple of different companies at that time. It was like Valve, Cave Dog, which was the company that did uh, Total Annihilation. Do you remember Total the... War? As in Total War game? No, it was called Total no. Annihilation. It was back. It's probably before most people's time at this point. You know, this this is in the nineties, right? Um, basically. They did, uh, so, so okay, I mean, since this is a podcast and for some reason, if anyone is still listening here at the two hour and 26 minute mark, um, so effectively there is, there's a, there's a fellow named Ron Gilbert 
who, if you don't know who he is, he's probably what I would call the greatest game engine architect of all time. Just kind of just out of the gate. I've never seen anyone with a track record of architecture quite as remarkable as his. Now, granted, he doesn't do 3D stuff. So, you know, there's a caveat there where it's like maybe he was working on a slightly easier problem. But I don't really think that architecture is about easier hard in that way. So to me, when I think about it, I'm like, he's prob. I would probably put him up there as either the best or he's in the top five, however you want to put it, right? And he designed Scum, the first, the script creation utility from for Maniac Mansion, the first point and click adventure game engine, really. Uh, and he basically was the person who created that entire idea. And he, so he was responsible for the architecture, basically, of all of the games that LucasArts shipped, you know, your Monkey Island, your Day of the Tentacle, you know, all that stuff. He then left there and started Humongous, where they made a new version of Scum, him and some of the people who had worked on it with him, um, like Dave Taylor and that stuff, I believe, went with him. I seem to recall, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know Dave that well, but I, b- I believe he was there when at the time. Um, and that was another huge company that made all the, the Putt-Putt uh, and and uh, Fatty Bears series and, the, and uh, Freddy Fish and all that stuff. Another huge franchise of adventure games on his architecture. And then he left and he's on his own now and he's made two or three more adventure game engines. And all of these were successful. And all of these like run great, right? The guy simply can't screw up. Uh, it's it's kind of remarkable. So when he was running Humongous, they're doing kids games. They're doing kids adventure games. Putt-Putt saves the zoo, that sort of thing. And he decides to start a subsidiary inside there called Cave Dog to do uh, regular games, like games that aren't just specifically for kids. And the first title that they do is by this guy named Chris Taylor, who did previously a game called 4D Boxing. And he does this game called Total Annihilation, which is a RTS game. It's, It's very popular. It sells like a million units or something. These are in the days when you have like actual box copies that are on a shelf. There's no Steam. Um, so the places that I, that were local that I went to interview at were, were Cave Dog, which was that company. Um, and I knew Ron Gilbert at the time. So I kind of knew, I knew Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor had left that company after that. And he started his own company called Gas Powered Games. So I interviewed there. I interviewed at Valve and I interviewed at Zombie which was, I think is now gone, probably. So I interviewed at those companies, and I ended up deciding to go work at Gas Powered, which was probably fine. Um, But the reason that I made that decision was because Valve had still never shipped a game. They were working on the first Half-Life. Okay, so that was was way back then. Way back. They they literally wanted me to come on to help finish Half-Life. I would have been like working on the first Half-Life, not the second one. The first Half-Life. That's how old I am. Um, And like, I just didn't really... So to this day, I don't really quite get first-person shooters. Um, I just... You know, the only time I've really ever settled into a first-person shooter was once with like Doom, which I really loved. And then once with PUBG, which I really loved. Uh, 
And in between, I'm just not the first-person shooter guy. I've never really wanted to make one. I just don't... I don't know. It's just not for me or something. And so uh, I just didn't really want to work on a first-person shooter. Honestly, I didn't think it was going to be a game that I was going to enjoy. And I'm, I'm kind of right about that. I'm just not a Half-Life fan. I'm just not. I don't think it's a bad game. I just... It's just not my style for some reason. I'm just not that, I'm just not into that. I don't play Counter-Strike, you know, I don't, I'm just not your typical FPS gamer. I think some people are. So I kind of wanted to work more on like an RPG or an RTS or that kind of thing. And that's what Cast Power is. So that's why I made that decision. I didn't last long there. I wasn't a very good programmer at the time anyway. Um, so I ended up changing and going to work at Rad. And that's really where I think I learned to be a decent programmer was working at Rad. Okay, fair enough. I mean, it's, it's worked out. And obviously when you're in the, like one, like you said, you wasn't that into first person shooters. Mm-hmm. Two, you've got a valve that hasn't, because it's not like, you know, you're interviewing when they're bad to do Half-Life 2 or when they're doing Half-Life 2 and they've had the immense success of Half-Life, Blue Shift and Opposing Force. You're doing it at, you know, day zero when they have not shipped, half, shipped Half-Life place. So it's like, oh, maybe, maybe not. I'm not too sure what this company is really going to be. Yeah. Um, and you've got this other company that's making a game that's more in line with the sort of games you like. So, yeah, I think it's a fair enough decision based on, you know, what you, you know, knew at the time. So well, I, 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 just to be clear. I probably wouldn't change the decision. So it okay. wasn't that I didn't know that they were, it's just, you know, my career is 100% only making decisions about what I think I want to work on, period. I've literally never done a single job change like in that kind of context because I thought one was going to be more successful. So it wasn't that I didn't think Valve would be very successful. I thought they would be. I just wasn't that interested in what they were doing, period. And that's the only reason. So I'd make the same decision today. It's just, it wasn't for me. And um, so, yeah, because I like the people. Jay Stelly was there at that time, who I love. I think he's awesome. Uh, I, I love Gabe. He's great. Mike Harrington was still there at the time, and I think he's great. Um, he's gone off and done, like, web stuff now or whatever. But, you know, at the time he was at Valve. Uh, so I, I like those people. I love their company. I just think for whatever reason, they're not my style. And, uh, so, you know, I mean, maybe that would be different today today because, you know, something like Dota, I'm not a Dota player, but that's more a game I can relate to. Like you're moving characters around and stuff. And if you're like, oh, you're going to go work on fixing some Dota stuff or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, I get that. Like, I understand this game. I'm interested in that or whatever. So, uh, you know. It's, it's all, it, that's, I think, what it is. And I've always been fortunate enough that I can make decisions like that. I can just make a decision that I'm going to go work on the thing I want to work on. But I've always done that. And, um, you know, so I don't think I would change that decision even today. Again, not a knock on Valve because I have nothing but positive things to say about them. And, and you know, uh, like I said, I don't think I've really ever cr- criticized them in public I mean, I barely criticize them in private. Uh, I just, I, I love what they do. And, you know, um, uh, that's that's really all I can say. Okay, good stuff. So in terms of coding standards, what are your general coding standards? And what are some more not-so-common coding standards that you have? 
I don't really have coding standards. Uh, I have m- probably more just like metrics that I like to pay attention to. Um, I would say the biggest ones uh, are basically like, uh, first of all, compile time should be very, very low. Uh, our all builds compile time for a while was seven seconds for the past maybe year or so. It's been around seven seconds. Recently, I upgraded our machines because they were quite old to newer machines. Uh, and now we've got it down to uh, sub two seconds. So less than two seconds for all builds. So all, um, I don't know what it is, 10 different targets, I guess. All builds recompiled in two seconds. And to me, that's around where I think it should be. If you're taking more time than that, it's a problem for me, right? This is why I, <laughs> this is why I have trouble mapping myself into the other people's development habits where they're like, oh, I, you know, like how long does one of your builds take? And they're like 30 minutes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Um, so I like to keep comp- compile time very, very, very low for even for complete, those are complete rebuild times. Uh, and I think it's very achievable for most games. There may be some games that are so complicated that they need more than that, but it's rare, right? Certainly there's no 2D game that needs more time than that. Um, but some 3D games might when you start t- tacking on enough stuff that they have to do. You start to to run into barriers where you can't fit it in under 50K of code. You know, you got you to gotta go higher and you're in 100K of code or something. But <clears throat> so that's one thing. Compile time, I watch really carefully. Uh, lock, I also watch very carefully. I always know how many lines of code the code base is. And if I think that certain sections are getting too long, there's too many lines of code, uh, I will go try to reduce them. Okay, fair enough. So, so just general optimization of your coding standard. Just keeping things good, clean, and working. And minimal. Uh, yeah. Because I think one of the worst things that happens to code bases for maintainability, for performance, for all the metrics is too much code. Mm. Because if you have too much code, then you've kind of just lost the ball game at that point. There's no way you're going to make that be optimized. There's no way that you're going to make that be easy to read or maintain because it's just too much. There's just too much. And so I think because most problems can be solved with very little code, if you just keep an eye on that, you can end up doing the same amount of work that you were doing in 50,000 lines of code with 1,000 lines of code. And I know that sounds like a ridiculous match, but it's totally true. There are plenty of places that have, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of lines of code that could be reduced by more than an order of magnitude. I mean, I've I've seen instances like that. I mean, there's times where I've wrote some code, obviously not tens of thousands, but I've wrote a fair bit of code and then I've reduced it to literally just a few lines. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and I'm like, but sometimes you know you, I, I mean it's that balance because sometimes you have to go through that tinkering process where things aren't quite that optimized and aren't quite you know that you know minimal yet and then you know you obviously maintain it you know you're updating you get it to that sort of minimal standard but then you got to make sure you know you, that you're doing it regularly enough that it doesn't go so out of hand that you never maintain it you know you end up becoming you know some huge company that you have legacy code on top of legacy code that's just so patchy and so big uh, you know you just have teams set up just to maintain code that shouldn't exist that's when obviously you know you know that you've taken things too far 
Well, and I think that what you just said is exactly right. I mean, it's it's literally the way I do it, right? Is I don't care my, my first pass of when I'm working on something. I don't care how many lines of code I take to do it. But once I notice that it has crept up and, oh, this subsystem, oh, like the asset importer is taking 3,000 lines of code. Does it really need it? So then I go and look and I'm like, okay, no, it doesn't, right? I can I can get rid of this 500 lines here. I can get rid of that 200 lines there. And to me, that's that's the important part of the process. It's totally fine to sprawl as long as you then go, oh, wait, I sprawled here. Let's clean that up because... Again, I want it to be done earlier rather than later because it always ends up creating a headache later if you don't. Because it just, more code begets more code and it just kind of keeps accruing more and more and more. And so having that compaction process, I think is the crucial part. Oh yeah, for sure. So I've got some, you know, fun generic questions now, you know, before we wrap up the, you know, podcast. Would you, I, I can already guess the answer to this one but i'll ask you anyway would you rather run a 10 person company or a 1000 person company and why 10 uh (laughs) because again i just it's not my skill set um i i don't think there's anything wrong with a 1000 person company but i would that company oh, oh here you go that company would just go out of business i mean i would i wouldn't be able to succeed i i have no if I, for some reason, absolutely had to, like like someone forced me to run a thousand person company, I'll try my best, but I just don't think I can do it. I don't think I am, not only am I not qualified, but I don't think that I have the personality or the instincts to do it. And so, I mean, I just can't. So it's not a, would I like to? It's a, I can't. I can't run a thousand person company. It's, I, I am incapable of that. Okay. $5 million up front or half a million a year for the rest of your life? The second one. Why? Well, because a half, you said a half million every year for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, that's more than enough to do everything. I mean, that's way more than I need to run what we currently do right now at Molly Rocket. So that just means we get to work on whatever we want to work on for the rest of our days. What a, what an obscene privilege that would be, right? Mm. I mean, that's what I'm trying to accomplish, right? That's my goal. Like, if I can be in a stable state where I get to work on anything I want to work on, and, you know, if I see something and I'm like, I want to try and figure out how to, how to do this thing, and I can go do that every day, that's the, that is the greatest joy that anyone could ever have in my book. So, I mean, I'll take, I'd take less, <laughs> Right. Um, if I could have guaranteed income of $200,000 a year for the rest of my life to run the company, I'd take that. Uh, I don't even need half a million. Fair enough. So, so so, the freedom to be able to do projects without the concern of, of them having to make money or you having to do something where you're, you know, you're allocating time, resources, and mentor you know, capacity to something that, that's making money and you can focus on something that might take six months or it might take six years, you prefer that idea. Well, I think the problem here is that what I consider success and what other people consider success are not similar. So other people might consider things successful of like, I, you know, I sold this many copies of a game or I am the CEO of a company that makes millions of dollars or we got bought by Google, right? Um, whatever those things are. 
my definition of success for me, like what makes me actually feel good when it happens is when I figure something out that I was trying to figure out. That to me is what I actually want. So if I am like, how do I structure this thing so that it does X? Because no one's ever done that before and I want to figure out how to do it. If I figure out how to do it, that to me is is everything. That unfortunately is doesn't make money, right? Yeah. There's nothing that there's no one who pays you specifically just to figure out whatever you want to figure out, right? <laughs> you might be able to get a job where you get paid to figure out what other people want you to figure out, and that's yeah. pretty good too. I don't mind that. Um, but it's kind of rare. So if somehow I could be put in a position where that's all I had to do every day, which is what guaranteed income would give you. I mean, I would be, you, first of all, you'd never see me on the internet ever again um, because I only, re, you know, like, so that would be great. I wouldn't have to ever, I would, I would, this computer that I have here, that's the one that's connected to the internet. My dev machine is not connected to the internet. I would just throw it out. I would throw it out and you would never hear from me again. Because so I would just, hero would just shut down. Yep. I'd give everyone a refund um, <laughs> and I would just, that would be it because I don't value the rest of the things. I value the knowledge. I want to know, right? Um, I want to know how it's done or should be done. And so that's to me. So so the guaranteed income thing, I mean, I wouldn't have to think twice. I'd just be like, yep, thank you. Done. I mean, I would be so delighted. Yes. Fair enough. Favorite board game? Ricochet Robot? I've not heard of that one. What's the objective of that one? Um, you can actually play it online if you want. I think there's a, still a daily Ricochet Robot that exists. Uh, Ricochet Robot is a absolutely amazing board game. It's my favorite board game by far. Uh, it's a board with like little sort of obstacles on it, and you put these little like tokens on it that represent four robots. On the board are several targets. They're like little spaces on the board that have a specific like symbol on them, so you know which one is which. At the beginning of each round, you turn over a symbol at random, and your goal is to get a specific colored robot to a specific location on the board. So in other words, let's say you turn over the green triangle or something. That means that the green robot has to go to the green triangle goal. Make sense so far? Yeah. Robots can only move in the four cardinal directions, and when they move, they have to move until they hit something. So if they're going to move left, they go as far left as they can until they hit like a wall or another robot. Everybody who's playing plays simultaneously. So it's not like normal board games where you're sitting around waiting for your turn. Everyone plays simultaneously. Someone flips over the thing, and you all look to see how many moves it will take you to move that robot to that square. And you can move the other robots too. So if you want to move one of the other robots to get it out of the way, or in more complex maneuvers, to set up a blocker so that the robot will hit it and change its trajectory in a different place, you can. When you have figured out what you think is a sequence of moves that will satisfy that, you call it out, like seven. So someone will just say seven, and then you flip over a timer. That timer is a one-minute timer. In that one minute, anyone else can call a lower number. So if you can optimize the route, like, because you don't know what their route is yet, but maybe you also found it, but you were a little bit late. If you can shave one more move off of it, you can call out six, right? Whoever, when the timer runs out, 
whoever has last called the lowest, who's called the lowest thing, demonstrates the 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 sequence, and if it works, and they didn't actually make a mistake, then they get a point. They get to keep the little token that was turned over. At the end of the game, the person with the most points wins. It's the best ga- board game I've ever played. I still enjoy it to this day, and it's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I mean, that definitely sounds like an interesting one. It's not one that I've heard and definitely not played before, but I, I'm going to have a quick Google. I mean, I just had a quick Google already now to see what the board looks like. But I'm going to have a look at some videos on YouTube of it, yeah. you know, in action. It, it, it seems pretty fun. Like, how long are the games? You know, like Monopoly is very long, and some games are just like five, ten minutes. Like, how long would you say it is? Well, that's the great part. It's as long as you want. If you play one round, it's like five minutes. Okay. If you play a hundred rounds, it could be several hours. Your choice, right? Okay. <laughs> and who at any time you can stop, and whoever has the most tokens is the winner, right? That's okay. the person who won the most rounds. Okay, so you, you could do like a best of three, so you know it's probably only going to be 15, 20 minutes or like a best of five kind of situation as well then. Well, usually you can do a lot more than that. I mean, each round only takes a few minutes. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Favorite video game? Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, or just give me a list of video games that you really like. So, uh, in terms of hours played, uh, the the two highest ones would be Dance Dance Revolution, the arcade <laughs> version, not the not the home version, but the arcade version of Dance Dance Revolution. Um, pretty much all mixes, but. You know, I mean, probably maybe fifth mix would be most, but, you know, everything from from USA, third mix, fourth mix, fifth mix, uh, and max, I would say, were the ones that I played the most of. Um, so Dance Dance Revolution and Player Unknown's Battlegrounds were probably the two by volume. Uh, also, probably coming in after that would be Doom. So those Doom were- as in the original? The original Doom, the yeah. 2D, like, I mean, no, it was not 2D, it's 2.5D, but you know what I yeah. mean? Not 3D graphics accelerated, but the old, like, you know, span buff, the, the, old, the old, like, um, not span buffer, the uh, old uh, uh, shrink, shrinking the vertical columns version of Doom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one. Uh, I don't know what you call that now. Doom 1983, two, uh, 1992, rather, or 1993. When did it come out? Something like that. So whatever it's that one idea, is, yeah. the first Doom. Uh, those are the ones by volume. Probably. Uh, in terms of like games that made a particular impact on me, uh, I would say like uh, Trinity and The Witness uh, were two probably, were the two games I think that probably like came the closest to being like real, like sublime art to me like what games that meant something more and and where my brain actually had more to think about and to process as a result of having played the game than happens ever with games most games you play them and you've played them right um i don't think about the ramifications of my experiences playing doom after i've played doom i just play doom and i enjoy playing it um, but yeah, like I would say Trinity and, and the witness, uh, are probably the games that impact me the most when I think about like 
showing what games, the range of what games can do beyond what we currently think of them as doing. I think those two games are very uh, important in that way. And, and playing them was a very profound experience. Okay. What video game are you looking forward to? Oh, uh, gosh, I don't think I am. Um, I don't think there's a game that I'm looking forward to right now. I, I don't tend to keep up with games that much. So that's probably less a statement of whether there are games that I would be looking forward to or not. And more just a statement of, I don't necessarily know what's coming out. Um, I just, don't read that much about it. So I tend to not know about games till after they're already available. Um, so there's that, but, uh, gosh, no, yeah, nothing. I don't think there really is something that I'm looking what? forward to. There's a game that John had in development that I played several years ago. That was early on. That's not scheduled for their company to even be working on till after the current game that they're working on. And that game was amazing. It's absolutely fantastic. I can't really talk about it because it was a it's a private thing that you know hasn't been announced or anything. But like, I'm looking forward to that the most. I'd say of any game in the sense that I supposedly it is going to be the next game they do. And and man, the finished version of that game will probably be amazing. So I am looking forward to that, but only in the loosest sense because it's going to be years before it's here. Mm, fair enough. And like, how much gaming? do you do these days um you know not that much i have a steam deck as we kind of talked about and so now i do kind of play on the couch sometimes i otherwise i don't play steam that much because i'm not up here in this in, in the in the room where i'm talking to you now uh which is the room with the computer that's connected to the internet um so i don't play steam games as much as i would like and so that's one of the reasons I bought the Steam Deck. And I've really been enjoying that because it's allowing me to play some more of the PC games that I've missed. And so I, I've been doing that. I also have a PlayStation 5. And recently I played some games on that. Um, I played uh, Horizon Forbidden West, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I played uh, Fallout 4, which I had never played. So I, I went back and played that. Um, and I played uh, Prey, which I'd never played. The new, the new the, one, not the old the one. The new one, yes. new one. So I've been doing some gaming, um, but I don't game that heavily. Uh, you know, I, I, but I, but I, you know, I play now and again, but just not that much. Okay. And what do you think of VR and what have been your experiences, experiences with VR, if any? So the only time I've ever uh, experienced VR was Valve's prototype headsets which okay. are very similar to the HTC Vive Vive HTC Vive yes is that what it's called yeah the Vive um, so uh i i've tried a couple i i i don't remember exactly which ones i i tried the early you know i i was over at valve and i tried the early ones that were based on the cameras looking outwards uh these were ones where you you put um these these little like uh they're like qpc or qr codes or whatever they're called qr codes i think uh you put those like qr code looking markers on the wall 
and then there's a camera looking out from your headset and it and it tracks those for the tracking yeah um i played with it when it was that which is something that never shipped uh and then i also think i did go yeah i definitely went when they had lighthouse working so that's the kind that they actually shipped with the htc vibe uh which is that kind of weird like laser scanning version where you have these emitters that you put on the wall Yes, the base stations. Yeah, I've tried both of those, and that's it. I've never had one at home. I never tried a PlayStation VR. I've never tried any of Oculus's stuff, uh, but I tried those Valve ones. Is there any particular reason? It's not a technology that interests me. Um, I I don't really understand the point of it. I get it as a niche market, meaning I can totally understand why some people want to have that immersive experience, meaning... I don't, I'm not confused why there are people who are excited about VR or like to put on a VR headset because I can understand the escapism of it. I can understand the interesting, the kind of novelty of an experience of feeling like you're transported somewhere. I totally understand that part. But as an actual thing that I would use on a regular basis, you know, there's already so many screens in life that experiencing the real world is just more important to me. I don't want a headset on my head. Uh, I, when I sit on the couch, I want to be sitting on the couch with the people in the room. I don't want to go to a virtual room and be sitting with people virtually. It just doesn't have a lot of the human sort of connection that I feel like is what I want when I'm, even when I'm playing games, I like to play games on the couch with someone else or something like that. And so, you know, uh, I don't really see the point of VR to be completely honest. And, you know, I, this has been my opinion, even from the first days I'll, I'll share with you a conversation I had because Mike Abrash was one of the guys who's been pretty into VR since it happened. Mike Abrash and Ottman Benstock were both there at Valve at the time when they were making this stuff, they were, they were the people who really were pushing this stuff and they ended up going to Facebook because they, they were part of, they, they left Valve and went to Oculus when it got bought by Facebook. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think Mike Abrash was one of the main guys who like led their whole metaverse VR thing. Well, way, way back when, when they were just starting this VR project, what they actually started originally before the VR project was an AR project glasses where you look through them and they put stuff overlaid on the real world. And I remember we were having conversation in a place called Mediterranean Kitchen, which is a little place that serves extremely garlic laden food in downtown (laughs) Bellevue. And I said the exact same thing then that I'll say now, which is I totally understand how AR could revolutionize the world when it gets down to just a pair of glasses that I put on and little information can be overlaid on the world for me. I totally get why that's basically like the next smartphone or something. I get it. VR, I have no idea why anyone wants this. It just seems niche to me. It seems like almost like an LBE thing, like location-based entertainment. Like it's something you do once a week at most, but most of the time people want to look at other people and want to feel like they're actually next to other people, not just the image of other people, but the ability to touch the person, the ability to smell the person, like all the things that are constantly integrated into your brain that let you know that you are really actually next to another human being. And like, 
when are we going to get there? Like, is it 50 years when we've got smell-o-vision and touch-o and, and haptics mm-hmm. and, and are they really going to work that well? I, I can believe someday that you'll deliver me a real experience of sitting next to someone on the couch and they're not really there. But I don't see that event horizon as being something I will even live to see. I, I believe I will be dead before humanity accomplishes that. AR goggles make perfect sense. When you can miniaturize the current tech down enough and get the battery life good enough, I think that's an obvious game changer. But VR, it's not in my lifetime. Okay, fair. Yeah, I mean, there's still, you know, ways to go with VR. I mean, would it be more interesting to you if it got to the Ready Player One point? No. I mean, not that I necessarily know exactly what you mean, because I'm only vaguely familiar with what Ready Player One is, but no. Okay, so you haven't watched the movie then, or read the book? No, I haven't. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, But but I get the idea. I mean, I I understand that that is a thing where you actually put on your home goggles and you go into a virtual world that everyone is in kind of thing. Yes. No, that Uh, wouldn't really... Again, I think that's achievable in my lifetime, and I think people might achieve it. I mean, Epic is working extremely hard on that right now. I think Roblox is probably looking at that right now. Meta certainly is. I mean, they renamed their whole freaking company. <laughs> um, I people are working very hard on it. I think they will achieve something like a Redder player, Ready Player One in my lifetime. I just don't think people will care. And when I say I don't think people will care, I don't mean that there won't be a healthy user community for it. I think there absolutely will be. But I think at best, it's just like something that's like Fortnite, which is like a very popular entertainment experience that some people have. But it is not the smartphone. It mm. is not a fundamental device that every human being now must have and uses every hour of every day. That is not VR. I just fundamentally don't think so. Not that it won't ever be, but just not in my lifetime. Okay. Fair but enough. AR, I think, like I said, AR, I think could be. I think I, think I might, when I am 65 and I'm old and rickety and I'm walking around with a cane... I may also have a pair of goggles that, you know, reminds me that I need to take my pills. I think that's a very plausible future that everyone is wearing AR goggles in the year 2040. Yeah. I mean, uh, you can definitely see the use case of it because, you know, like you just alluded to, we all have smartphones that that's become such an essential part of human beings and the amount of time we'll pull it up for information, you know, on a local restaurant, on, you know, yes. directions or whatever it is. But imagine instead of pulling that up, it's just in front of you. And maybe, you know, it's not always visible. So you've just got all your glasses. Maybe you look into the top left for like one second and like a little circle thing pops up. And then that triggers the AR mode. And then when you look at a restaurant in the real world, you get literally the star rating. You get like the last few reviews and some images or, you know, something along those lines. And maybe even if you want a 3D sort of kind of experience where you can actually see what it's like from from the inside without even going inside. So, yeah. You pop up a picture of the food that spins around or whatever. Yeah. And to me, like, like I said, I'm not a Luddite. I don't. You know, I think there will be technological progress, but my read of human history 
like all I can really say is when you look at the kinds of things that have had societal changes, they're not things that fundamentally change the human experience. I mean, one of the, okay. So one of the classic things I think I've heard along these lines is what is flying on a plane? Like it's exactly like sitting on a bus. There's no freaking difference, right? It's a completely ridiculous thing. You're flying 35,000 feet in the air. You're going 700 miles an hour. And it's exactly the same as riding a bus. To me, technological progress in history tends to look like you got exactly the same thing you were getting before, but more efficiently. VR is not that. VR does not give you anything that you were getting before, but more efficiently. It's fundamentally a different way of experiencing the world. And those technologies don't seem to succeed very often. They're very, very uncommon. So typically, you would expect to see something more like AR. You're getting the exact same experience you were getting before, but it's a little more convenient. Instead of having to pull your thing out of uh, thing out of your pocket and look at it, now it's just right there in your field of vision, so you don't have to do any work, right? Very logical. I can easily see how it happens, and humans don't change much as a as a way that it works. VR is more like the Matrix. It's more like if we were to imagine this really being a foundational change to society, it's like everyone is sitting with VR goggles on for eight hours a day or something like that. It's a totally different world. It's a totally different experience for everybody. And I just don't fundamentally see that happening in my lifetime. It could get there over many, many generations of slow steps, but I just don't see it getting there. You know, the... All of that is just a long-winded way of saying the reason I don't care about VR is I'm pretty sure that the time, the day it will matter will be after the day that I die. Yeah, uh, I mean, I have a, quite a few head, you know, VR headsets. I enjoy playing VR, but I do want to get, I do want it to get, you know, to us like to the next step. Like, because I bought PSVR two, I've been doing some gameplay videos of Horizon Call of the Mountain on it, and it's good. And on one of my gameplay videos, I was literally saying that it's the the first time I put on a VR headset was obviously an astronomical leap, uh, you know, compared to obviously just viewing it on the TV. But PSVR to PSVR 2, yes, there's a difference. The headset's better, a bit higher res, blah, blah, blah. But the leaps just aren't there anymore and I fear that the next five, ten years might not have those crazy ass leaps and it might just be PS4 to PS5. You know, things are slightly getting better and at that level it is like, okay, VR, if it's only gonna get incrementally better over the next five to ten years, I don't think it's gonna really attract that many more users because therefore it's already at a level where it should attract the users. Uh, well, yeah, and- I mean, that's, that's exactly what I think. It's like, it seems like it is what it is right now. And if you're the kind of person who wants that niche experience because you think that it's fun or you think it's entertaining or you like the Vista or you like whatever, it's serving that need right now. And it's doing a decent job. I think it technologically, it's, it's, very good compared to what VR has been in the past. I mean, some of the VR systems of the past are a joke if you've ever seen them. Um, So, you know, I just don't see it getting much more adoption than it currently has. I think it could have another bump 
when someone like Epic does like Fortnite VR as a big push or whatever, I do think that could drive a wider adoption within like gamers or people who are playing games. Maybe you can get a sort of a bigger leap when there's some really big event kind of thing that's happening there. I do see there being growth. I don't think it's like dead or anything. I do see there being growth. I just don't think it's going to matter to my life. I don't think it's going to matter to my parents' life. It's just, I just don't see it getting there. Not ever, but rather before I'm dead. So that's because I'm not a person who cares about that particular niche experience. That's why I'm not that interested in it. I think it's already a great ecosystem for people who care about that niche experience if if you, I think it would be fun to go make a VR game. It, it does what it needs to do right now. I just don't think it has really any society changing implications right now in the way that AR does. Like AR to me, I think is something I'm watching. I'm waiting for the indications that AR is coming because I really do think that one is going to be huge and it's going to be fast. When it hits the tipping point, of we can actually make comfortable, easy to wear glasses with reasonable reasonable battery life that do this, that is going to be a fast, important technological change for everyone, not just people who want a particular gaming experience. Mm. Oh yeah. It, having that sort of technological shift is it's definitely going to be fundamental. And uh, I mean, what did you think of Google's attempt with Google Glass? I mean, I never had one, so I couldn't really say, but it sure seems like it wasn't interesting enough to matter. Mm. Um, again, because, I mean, I'm assuming that technologically it just could barely do anything but put a little tiny bit of text, like, up in the corner, right? Yeah, and, it wasn't that big. And, like, yeah, I'm trying to think, did, were there even glasses or was it just that little view with a frame? Like, they weren't even glasses, were they? Well, they didn't really do the thing that I think is the fun foundational change technologically that AR brings, which is aligning, like looking at the world and overlaying seamlessly things on top of what you actually see, right? Um, and that's the thing that would bring, you know, I mean, you can imagine what happens if you're walking down the street, like you said, and everything you see can now just be inspected for more information. Did you want a reservation at that restaurant you just walked by? You can literally just do that, right? There's no pulling out a phone, finding it. What was that restaurant? Like, it's just like, no, I got a table right there just by looking at it. Or did you want to, you know, find out you're in another city that you're visiting for the first time and you want to do the freedom trail in Boston. Well, it just guides you along it and little things of Paul Revere pop up. I mean, you can see like how this just becomes something that everyone uses all the time for everything, because every single thing in the real world can be augmented by information. And currently we do that with our smartphones. So all of that just immediately happens in AR. The instant someone can actually deliver that experience. Now I know that they want this, meaning Facebook, the people who are working on VR, they wanted to do that. The problem is it's very difficult. It's way easier to do VR than it is to do AR because AR is just basically the same as VR, but with the problem of having to be real-time tracked to the world, right? So I know they know this and I know they want to do it too, but until they actually are able to start delivering that, I'm just not thinking that that VR, which is AR minus the world tracking seamlessness, 
is really going to be that interesting for humanity. It's still interesting for gamers or for people who want an interesting concert experience. There's cool stuff you can do with it, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't really change the world, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, I mean, did you have you seen much about the Snapchat glasses? No, I haven't. Okay, yeah, so with the Snapchat, yeah, they've got some glasses, and then uh, in one of the corners, or maybe both, uh, but definitely one of the corners, they've got a camera, and they look a lot more seamless. You can tell there's a camera there, but overall, the size of the glasses does not look much bigger than, because I think they've done a collaboration with Ray-Bans, uh, Ray-Ban as uh, well. Yeah, so, yeah. I, because, you, can, you know, they have a slightly bigger frame, they don't look much bigger than a regular pair of Ray-Ban, and They've been obviously focused on taking videos and pictures to be uploaded on their platform. It's less of a Google Glass approach, but like the technology is is really getting there in terms of having computing power on your head that seems comfortable. Because I haven't tried it personally, but seems comfortable enough can do a decent amount. So it's exciting times and like. I want to, again, I want to, to the point where, uh, I, I mean, when I was a kid, I was prescribed glasses. I never wore them. As a result, my eyes got used to never wearing glasses, so I'm actually all good. But a good set of AR <laughs> would actually probably make me wear glasses, yeah, and, yeah. you know, for that experience. But again, obviously, you got the privacy concern, especially, you know, like with the Snapchat glasses where there's, an obvious camera there. Yeah, I mean that's sort of a whole other thing, but yeah, cameras on glasses is probably one of those things that society will have to start passing laws about because there will be, you know, incidents to be to say the least. Yeah, I, I mean definitely the uh, j- just because there's not much done in the way of it, and it's still very niche, very specialist, and only a few people really have it realistically. L- the legal system hasn't had to catch up, but when exactly. that time does, it's not an issue until lots of people are doing it. And yes. once lots of people are doing it, you get those issues. And then, you know, then the government steps in cause they, you know, they're the people who have to pass laws and they don't even know about this stuff. Right. So it has oh, to yeah. rise to a certain level of, of significance and prevalence before it starts getting the attention. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. So moving on, does money buy you happiness? And what does a good life mean to you? So I think I actually already answered that question. I mean, right? you kind of have, um, but more specifically. So, so, yeah, I mean, I would literally reiterate exactly what I just said, which is that money absolutely does buy happiness from the standpoint of if you are somebody who has something that you do that makes you happy, but that thing doesn't really make money directly then money pretty much directly translates to happiness. And that's definitely the case for me. Like when I can support myself and just do programming research, that's the happiest that I am. I really can't get happier than that. Uh, And so in a very direct way, I would say for me, money does buy happiness. Uh, And so it also buys you freedom from unhappiness. So having to interact online, maintain a Twitter presence, do streams, post videos. I don't like doing any of those things, but it's impossible for you to do your own projects and make money off of them without that self-promotion, right? Because if you don't do that, then no one knows about your thing. 
no one knows about what you're doing and you can never sell anything. Right. Um, so you have to do all that stuff. And if, you know, if I had the money to just never do any of that stuff, I mean, like I said, I'd throw this computer out the window the day, the day after winning the lottery, like there's no internet at my house. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I, that's not really true. Cause I want, I'm going to want to watch my movies on, on, you know, HBO max or something. Right. So that's not true. I would still have, you know, an inbound connection, but the day that's it, you know, my YouTube closes, my Twitch closes, you, my Twitter is gone on that day because it's just way more fun to program than it is to interact with the wider world. Uh, and it really only brings you frustration. So what I would say is, you know, money really is a big factor. Now, can money take someone who is unhappy fundamentally and make them happy? Probably not. So money can't literally buy happiness, but for someone who would be happy normally, but there are constraints that make it harder for them to be happy. Money absolutely buys happiness for those people. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that that as long as you kind of have that distinction, I think it's totally true. Yeah, I mean, my approach on it is very similar to yours. I, I mean, when I asked that, you know, this question, especially based on the other things we had discussed and your responses, I was not expecting, you know, that response because when you said absolutely by the happiness i you know and as you was talking i i i, I sat back and i feel like did he just say it does absolutely because i was expecting you to say no it doesn't but like, i agree you know the sort of freedoms it provides is amazing like knowing that you don't have to work anymore is amazing like i've said to myself that the day that i get to a point where i have fu money like real fu money if that day if and hopefully that day comes I'm deleting all my social media. <laughs> I yeah, like, oh, I, absolutely. It's, it's thing number one. Like, I just think number that's one. all going. Apart from my YouTube account, because, you, know, uh, you know, I want to have some playlists. You know, apart from that, you know, everything's, you know, going. Obviously, I'll keep my Gmail, you know, my email address, because obviously, you know, I need that and I want that. But otherwise, I'm going incognito. I'm going ghost. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know... I guess the other thing I'd add to the money money buys happiness thing. So yeah, uh, I mean, I think I explained that position quite clearly, but I would add, add one more thing, therefore, which is just that more money doesn't equal more happiness. Mm. So for me, it's just like, I would default be happy if I can pay my expenses. Because if I have the money to pay my expenses, then that means I can just do my programming and that's it, right? And that is the happiest I'm going to be. If you then give me another million dollars I won't get any happier. I mean, I can go do some things with that. Maybe I could, you know, help some other people out with that money. Maybe I can go on some trip that I want to go on that I will enjoy. But I am already, once I get those expenses paid for, I am already base level happy because I get to do the thing that I love. And so I think if you're a person who has something that you love that you can do every day, then it money absolutely buys you happiness. And you all, and not only does it buy your happiness, but you only need that much. You only need the expenses part because I don't, I won't get any happier after my expenses are paid. I, I don't need like, like buying a car or something will make me no happier. All I just need is whatever the minimum is that allows me to live and do programming. That's all I need. And so it's also a case of it's, it's less that money buys happiness. It's more like there's a threshold of money where if you can make, if you have access to over that threshold, then I'm just as happy as I can be. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, good. Uh, 
because one of the things I, you know, you know, this is a question I ask all my guests. And one of the things I probably most of the time say is it gets to a point where, you know, each aspect of your life or like many aspects of your life can be improved with money, but you got to know how to, you know, distribute it and, you know, use it in each aspect. Because let's say you use public transport and you don't like that, you want to get a car. You know, having the money to get a car will, you know, almost infinitely elevate your life. You know, what you can do with, you know, having a car and then having the money to have a nice enough car that doesn't have many problems and having the money that if if and when you do have problems, you need tires replaced, brake pads, you know, yep. all that stuff. Yeah, you might not want to spend two, three grand, but knowing that you can afford it without like as we could afford you know a one pound or one dollar expense and you wouldn't cry about it you do the two three thousand pound on the car and you're like it is what it is and exactly yeah and then on top of that let's say if you've got a wife or like a husband you might think okay them having their own will you know make things a bit easier maybe you got an older child you know them having their own will make things a bit easier but after that extra cars is not really going to add any significant level of happiness. Then you need to be like, okay, I've done the car aspect of it. Let me look at the other aspect, maybe having a slightly bigger house or extending or, you know, something slightly nicer in the house. But then it gets to a point where even that your happiness has peaked with, you know, your accommodation. Then it's like, okay, maybe you want to go on some holidays. Maybe you've got enough money that every you know year you can go on two holidays maybe that's your number that's enough and you don't need to be always on holiday that might actually make you upset and but then you know you have that peak and then it's same with food it'll get to a point where you know you can just buy healthy food you know you can buy the food you want you don't have to buy cheap rubbish and that you can go out if you want to if whenever you want to and you're not having to you know use coupons or you know you know, have the cheap drink or no drink or water instead of the fizzy drink or whatever it is. And, but then it gets to a point where, you know, going to a restaurant that charges you a hundred to $200 for you. And let's say a couple of people versus going to one that charges you $10,000. The happiness is not going to go up a hundred times. Well, it's like, not going to go up at all. I mean, this. Yeah. Here's it the might, thing. It might go down. It might, it, yes, I was just. That's yeah. exactly you what might I was be disappointed with that ten thousand yes. dollar meal. I mean, uh, like, let's just stick with the car analogy. So, at least for someone like me, if I buy a Honda, right, that's thirty grand, or I buy a Ferrari that's three hundred grand. I guarantee you my happiness would be substantially lower with the Ferrari because they break down all the time. Yeah. And, and you'd like, be on you're like because you're like, oh, or you're like worried oh, about the attached. Yeah. So like, you know, it's like, no, the the cheaper thing, the thing that was ten, you know, that there was uh, a tenth the price is way better because I just need the thing to get me where I'm going, right? So and that parallels exactly the same with the dinner. It's like, yeah, you know, I mean once in a while, you may be able to find some place where, you know, it's several hundred dollars a person, but oh man, it was really worth it. I mean, yeah, can that happen? I, sure. Uh, I'm sure it does. But in reality, the $15, um, which, you know, these days is very, 
when I say $15 for a meal, I, in my head, think very expensive. But in the area that I live, that's actually a cheap meal now. Like things yeah. are so expensive here that like that used to be $5, right? Now it's 15 But either way, point being, the cheap stuff is great, right? It's like when you find a good place that they, you know, that serves kind of the like good old fashioned food, it's great. And so, you know, I don't know. So I, I do think that's why I say it's really more money doesn't buy more happiness, but there's a threshold. When you can afford to, to, to eat, to, to buy the $15 meal, when you have that kind of money, then I think you're just, at least for me, I'm as happy as I can be at that point. When I know that if I wanted to go buy a $15 meal, I can, that's the happiest I can be. And telling me that now I can go buy a $300 meal all the time, like every day I can go out to some incredibly fancy restaurant, I wouldn't. <laughs> You know, I wouldn't, I don't want that. And so it wouldn't make me any happier. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. Like it's just the, it's, it's the freedom to be able to do, you know, have the $300 meal, but then choosing not to have it on the <laughs> regular. Like it, it, yeah. it, it's that freedom. It, it, yeah. um, it's like, it's the freedom to not be able to get out of bed, but you're still going to get out of bed. And you're still going to choose to do things. That's going to make you more happier than being having you know a lazy lifestyle. But and it's low I, stress, right? You're not going to be stressed all the time because if you can buy a Ferrari, but you choose to buy a Honda Accord, yeah. well, if you wreck your Honda Accord, you just buy another Honda Accord. You don't even care, right? Because you've got that money. That does buy some freaking happiness, right? Because if you're sitting around stressed all the time because any little mistake that you make you could be in real trouble, a health crisis, your car gets damaged, whatever. And suddenly you're in debt and you don't know how you're going to pay your credit cards and all those things. That's incredibly stressful for people. So yeah, again, it's just like, it really isn't about the money per se in that, like, I need to buy these things. It's the security, it's the safety, it's the knowledge that it's okay. It's tremendously valuable to anybody. I think anybody can appreciate just how wonderful that is to to have that lifestyle, especially if, you know, a lot of us have had times in your life when maybe that wasn't true. Um, you know, and you, you know instinctively how much happier you will be and less stressed when you aren't adding that, oh my God, what what do I do if X happens? Because you're right on that, you know, razor's edge, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely an important, you know, you know being in a position where, you can take a few hits in life, exactly, and it's it's an inconvenience more than you know anything else. It's like right. if you go to the supermarket and you want to get you know pasta and you want to get fusilli, but they only have penne. It's 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 a slight inconvenience, but you're like <laughs> yeah, penne is fine. I don't yeah. mind. It's all good. I prefer fusilli, yeah. but I don't mind penne, or right. I, or I don't mind spaghetti. Like they don't have the regular. Fusely penned, they only have long spaghetti. It's like, you right. know, I can make that work. Like you're not you're not gonna be stressed out and losing sleep about that. No, right? exactly. Like, who cares? It was some pasta. What difference does it make? Yeah. But yeah, you know, if you're if you're worried about trying to make ends meet, I Yeah, you and know, you can't afford no pasta or anything, yeah. that's when the issues, you know, come that's up in your when life. It's really dread and you have that, you know, pit uh in your stomach right and you're just stressed out all the time it's like that's just no that's no way to live and a lot of people have to live that way and so that you know i think it's just undeniable to say that money buys at least some amount of happiness because i don't know anybody who was living in that situation who whose life couldn't be made better by having those basic needs met it's just it's simply 
It's just simply true. And maybe you'll still be an unhappy person, but you'll be at least a less stressed person. But I think for a lot of people, they will just be a happier person to know that, right? Uh, to have that security. I, I just think, I mean, I, I just don't see any way that that can't be true for, for almost everybody. I mean, I totally agree. And I think a lot of people do a disservice to themselves and lie to themselves when they say money doesn't buy you happiness and money is the root of all evil. You know, those sort of typical sayings and quotes. And it's like, but most of your working hours, your you know, or a big chunk of your working out, you know, waking hours, you're literally doing in something that you probably would not do if you did not get money. Like you, you clearly care about it. Like, and that's not just you, that's me and everyone else because you know, you got to eat. Like, it, well, it's, it's important to just, that's why I said like the threshold is the important part because it's easy to point to rich people who are clearly unhappy. So obviously money doesn't literally translate directly to happiness. Like the more money you have, the happier you are. Your personality has a lot to do with whether or not you will be a fundamentally happy person or a fundamentally unhappy person for sure. So I understand what people mean when they say money can't buy happiness or money doesn't buy happiness. But the only thing that's really referring to is that it is not a guarantee that if you take an unhappy person and give them money, they will become happier. That is a true statement. But what is not a true statement is that there aren't unhappy people that you could give money to who will become happy. There are lots. There are lots and lots of people out there whose lives right now are miserable because they don't have basic resources, right? They're living in poverty or they're or they're right above poverty and they're exactly in that place we're talking about where they have to worry every day about whether their car will break down because they wouldn't know how they're going to pay for it. And so to suggest somehow that there aren't literally millions of people like that who's actually would be quite a bit happier if they had more money is just ridiculous. So yeah, it's it's just a fallacy of extending something that's true sometimes, meaning there are there are people you can find who no amount of money will ever make them happy. Totally true. But in the mine run of cases, most people I think would be a lot happier if they're over that threshold. And there's tons of people in the world who are under that threshold. So money buying happiness, yeah, it does. And it does for a lot of people a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. I mean, I like that you said that you're probably the first guest that has been that blunt about it. I've had other ones that have said, yay, but you know, it can, you know, buy you freedom. But, but I mean, I do like that. You're just like, yep, unequivocally, it does. It's not the be all and end all, but it helps a lot. I mean, because you've talked about, you know, you know, getting past a certain threshold uh, and that's, you know, really covering, you know, most things that yeah. probably make, you know, any impact on your life. Like, what do you think that threshold is for people? You know, let's say in dollar form. Well, I mean, the problem is you can't really put a dollar amount on it because it depends greatly on where you live. If the state, you live, yes, of course. If you live where I live in the Pacific Northwest, that dollar amount is very high because even just affording a place to live is very expensive. You go to somewhere in rural Thailand and that number dropped dramatically, <laughs> right? Because oh, the yeah. cost of living in various places is very different. So I can't really put a dollar value on it because it depends on where the person is. But I would say when you can make rent, when you don't have to worry about how you're going to make rent, when you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for your transportation, and when you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for your food and medical expenses, that's the threshold. Because then you're just living a life. You are not mm. just trying to survive. 
you are now thinking about how you're like, you're doing an actual daily activity that you're living your life, right? And that threshold, I think anyone who's below that might very well be a naturally happy person, but is could potentially be very unhappy because they're struggling just to survive. And, and I think that anyone put in that position will be, I would be very unhappy in that position. And I'm a pretty happy person normally, but struggling to survive is painful. It's painful for any human being. And maybe I would try my best to put a good face on it, but it hurts. Okay. Mm. It really does. And anyone who thinks it doesn't, isn't paying attention. So there's no question there. And then I would say there's a secondary threshold, which is, are you doing what you love? Very few people actually can go to a job and make money doing what they really love to do. Some people can, most people can't. So that's another threshold. If you have enough money now that suddenly you're not really having to take any specific job, you can just do what you want every day. Well, that might make someone extremely happy too. I know people who really don't like their jobs, but there's not really much they can do. There isn't another job they can get that is doing something that they love. Or maybe they don't really have anything that's a job that they love. They love to, you know, just, I don't know, they like to go out and uh, walk. They just like to walk around and experience the world. Well, that's not a job. You know, no one's going to pay you to do that. But you might be supremely happy doing that thing. And so if somehow you get a windfall or you retire someday and then you can go do that thing, I mean, your happiness goes up. I mean, it really does. And so I think there are two separate thresholds. And I think when you cross them, you really can have a material difference in your happiness. And I think that most people will get happier when those thresholds are crossed. That doesn't mean there aren't people who will never be happy. And it also doesn't mean that sometimes being wealthy can't bring its own unhappiness. All of the things that happen when you are wealthy might cause you to become less less happy um, because of other extraneous factors. So I'm not trying to downplay any of that, but I'm just saying there are basic things that I think we can observe. And those two thresholds are the two thresholds that I think would be a huge difference for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, for sure. I I, I mean... I like that clear distinction between, you know, having, you know, enough money to cover, you know, all of basic stuff and then, you know, a little extra, you know, as a buffer. And then, you know, having, you know, purpose and fulfillment in your life where you're doing stuff that actually makes you happy, you know, yes. makes you want to get up, you know, work on yeah. stuff, and, you know, something. Have, which, sometimes, you know, which sometimes requires money. And that's why I included yes. it. Like some people will be able to do that as a way of getting money and that's fantastic but other people what brings them fulfillment simply wouldn't pay the bills and for those people somehow getting a windfall again would make a huge difference in their material happiness because now if what makes them so happy every day is sitting at the end of a dock and like f- catching a fish now and again or something well now they can just do that every day even though commercial fishing is the only way you would actually get paid and that's not yeah. that right so you know i think it's pretty clear i think those th- those those break points those those split points are very clear and i think that you know i i don't think i'm saying anything outlandish when i point that out no no i don't think you are but i think it's one of those things that it's almost like if p one if if somebody acknowledges one they have to you know put down the other it's like if you acknowledge that you need to find something that you love working on you know let's say you know your passion you know something that you enjoy then you kind of have to you know put down money is important and money buys you happiness to an extent or you know the vice versa if you 
you know, talk to people that, you know, let's say do really well financially, then it's almost like, you know, forget about, you know, what I enjoy. I, it's just purely about material stuff and, you know, making much money instead of being like, okay, you know, you can marry both, you know, you, you know, in your life. And it might not be in the same career. Like you might be doing something that makes you money and, you know, it's not your, let's say, passion or the thing that really you know, gets your flame going. But you could do that on the weekends or the evenings or you only work three, four days because that's enough instead of like the full five or maybe six days of overtime. And the other three, four days, you do your own stuff. Like that might be the balance. Uh, And I think that's something that people just don't talk about, that the balance might not be you doing something that you love that makes you money. It might be you doing something that, okay, you don't want to hate it to the point where, yeah, I don't think there's, anyone out there that would enjoy scrubbing toilets and then be happy enough that they're doing something that they enjoy on the evenings and on the weekends i think they'll rather you know change that job that makes the money but if the job isn't let's say really you know driving a flame in you that's not always the end of the world because if you've got something else going on in your life some hobbies some meaningful relationships something that really gets you know your passion going that might make up for where your let's say your career or your job is kind of lacking in yeah yeah very possibly yeah okay so before we wrap up i just want to ask one last thing biggest regret in your development journey because you've had you know a long development journey like what for 30 40 years uh, if you're counting you know you when you started at what seven years old and you work at a bunch of companies and they're doing your own stuff what would be your biggest regret Biggest regret is doing anything publicly. So if I could go back in time, I would do no, we wouldn't be having this podcast, which is not to say that I'm not enjoying this podcast because I am, uh, but rather that like, I would rather you and I just had this conversation because it was a lovely conversation and mm. that I'm not on social media or I'm not having to maintain a public presence in order to remain financially viable, right? In order to make sure that when I have something that I need to promote, that I have a presence to promote it, right? Um, So I would probably say if I could rewind time back to 2014, I would just say, okay, yes, all of those things are true, meaning you do need all of those things if you want to promote projects. Just trust me, Casey, it's going to make you very unhappy. So figure out like just make the trade-off that it means you won't exactly be able to do independent projects all the time, but go find a place you can work where you don't have to have any public presence at all and nobody knows who you are and you never have to speak publicly or anything like that. And they just more or less let you work on their technology. That is what I would have done because no amount of the ability to do PR now, which I do definitely have and appreciate it. Like when I announced my Substack, I mean, I think it's been 30 days and we have 12,000 subscribers, which Jesus. is insane <laughs> for a Substack, right? So it worked, right? I did the right things that I was supposed to do to make that happen, but at what cost, right? The cost has been kind of extreme and I would never do it again, ever. Uh, there is no amount of money that it would. E- there's no amount of money that this will ever generate in the long run that could ever have that could ever pay for it for it. Okay. 
I, I mean, I totally understand what you mean. They're yeah, well, having... you said yourself you'd delete your social media yeah. if you were rich, right? So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. It's like my views are, I mean, not my, I would say my opinion on it is slightly different just because I know I knew going in and doing my own business, doing my own thing, I'm going to have to, like, again, I don't enjoy the, you know, I don't mind the public facing side of it. It's the marketing aspect of it that, mm-hmm. honestly, I'm. I, that's the thing that I have really, really lacked on, you know, trying to figure that out to a point where it just clicks. And, you know, it, you know, I release some new content, I release something, and it just does well based on the, the quality of it. Because, you know, I've released videos before, and, you know, objectively, I'm like, they're not the best, but then they do so well. And then I've released videos where I put time, effort yes. in. You know, yeah. I've you know, you know, got a nice description, nice thumbnail. I've got you know, timestamps. You know, you know, the whole shebang that you would think would make for a good video. And then he gets jack of views, and I'm like, well, it's, uh, it's worse. It's worse than even what you're saying. Let me give you a very concrete example. I released a video about five or six days ago called clean code horrible performance mm-hmm. that was what it was called that video got three hundred and fifty thousand views in a few days that is by far the fastest i've ever gotten i mean that's a massive number of views for the kind of stuff that i put out mm. is it's not it's a short video it's talking about one very specific thing very briefly it's just a part of a larger thing that i stuck out there what kind of message is that sending to me? The reason that video was successful is because lots of people argued about it. It was like, there were like rage threads about people arguing about whether what I said was true or false or, and it was an ambiguous video. I mean, it was, like I said, it was a small piece of a larger thing, which of course no one's going to ever go look at. So they only see that one slice. So people could take it any way they wanted really. And then argue about it in online, on Reddit, on Hacker News, on Twitter. And the result, massive number of views, right? So the lesson is you should create fairly terse, not very well-explained, ambiguous videos that are rage-inducing because those will get literally a hundred times more views than you just doing some sensible programming. That's the lesson. And it's not for just for me. That's true for everybody. If you produce something aggravating, you will be way more successful <laughs> than just producing something educational. And I feel like that is just the horrible state that things have gotten in. Because things that make people angry, they post about. And posts mm. are what bring people to videos. Things that make people happy, yeah, they might post about a little bit. Or things where they learn something, they might post about a little bit. But there's no engagement. There's not another person jumping on going, oh, no, that video sucked. Oh, no, it was great. It said something that really needed to be said, right? And so what you see is we've created inadvertently a market or an environment where the things that get the most like engagement and therefore generate the most money for their creators are precisely the kind of content that I would prefer not to make, right? 
And so to me, I think it's even worse than what you're suggesting. It's even worse than, gosh, it doesn't seem like quality really determines the outcome of this video, which I think is true, but it's worse than that. It's also that things that are not really very good for society or very good for education are more popular than things that are. And that's really bad. Oh, yeah. Like, effectively, what you're talking about can be summed up as, you know, clickbait almost. Like, like, yes. the, like the stuff I see online and you see it with big YouTubers where like every video that they've gotten out is just clickbait, like just clickbait yes. after clickbait. And like, I, I just, like, I think yesterday I unsubscribed to a bunch of YouTubers. I mean, I hadn't really watched their content in a while. So it wasn't like some, you know, big statement on my part, but I hadn't watched them for a while. And cause I was just looking through my subscriptions and, you know, looking for something to watch. And uh, I saw that I was just like, let me see what the you know, latest thing they've got on there. And I was like, oh, it's just, I mean, I'd already known they was doing clickbaity stuff, but then I was just seeing, I was like, I can't be asked for this. So I'm just, uns- I'm just unsubscribing. Not that it makes a difference then because for my unsubscribe, they're probably getting 10 subscribes. This is exactly uh, the point. This is exactly the point, right? Those YouTubers aren't bad people. This is what the market forced them to do, right? If I had to make money on YouTube right now, then all I would be doing right now is making more videos just like that one, right? 350,000 views. That's a very large number of views for a programming video. So the message is loud and clear. And that is what, if a creator is going to survive, if they have to make their money, like I have the ability because I can make money in other ways here. I have the ability to just not do more of that. Like I'm like, I don't really want to do that as the kind of videos I make. So I'm not going to. People who make their money directly from YouTube, they don't have that choice. So there, it is just a fundamental fact that the only people who will be left in that market, because the only people who can make ends meet doing that work are people who make clickbait. And so we can complain about clickbait all we want, but that is the only way those people will feed themselves. That is how you can actually make money on these videos. And so it's a really, really bad economy. And it is very unfortunate that that's the way that things have gone. It is because because I know one of the you know things I do is like a lot of educational content on YouTube. And it's just the views of my videos compared to, let's say, more clickbaity videos. And, you know, uh, you know, obviously it's a dilemma that I have that, you know, how clickbaity do I make it? You know, sometimes, you know, I'll put, you know, let's say if I'm creating a tutorial on, you know, how to set up an emulator, for example, that's one of the things I do a fair bit outside of programming. I might put in the ultimate guide to, you know, installing PCSX2. Like, that's probably as clickbaity as it will probably, you know, get. And even, even that sometimes you know, makes my stomach go a bit. And it's like, but you know, I look at it, I'm like, okay, I'm not, there's no real lie in the title. It, 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 it's not like, you know, I'm saying, yeah. you know, uh, you, you've got to watch this video now. I'm quitting YouTube and they're not quitting YouTube. <laughs> you know, yeah, when well, you get I those think, videos. I think that's why Substack, I, I think has been so great uh, for us is because, it's a place where if someone values the kind of content I'm making, then they pay us $9 a month for it, right? And that is works. 
The problem with a model like YouTube is most of the money that comes in from YouTube, they don't have a very good subscription model. They've added, they've tried to add stuff like that, but it doesn't work very well. So when you look at what happens on YouTube, you're just trying to generate huge numbers of views. 350,000 views isn't that many if you're trying to get paid on YouTube, right? I mean, you're trying to make like a million views if you're trying to get paid on YouTube, if you're trying to make any sort of living on it at all. Mm. And so what happens is there aren't a million people who want to know how to set up the emulator in your no. example. There aren't. So the only way to make that work monetarily in a market like YouTube is for you to do something clickbaity so that you get a bunch of views from people who didn't actually want to watch the video, right? The 350,000 views on the video that I'm talking about, most of those people don't want to watch my stuff. What I'm doing there, right, is generating money from people who didn't want the thing. And that just doesn't work. It means I have to make videos, like you said, that are clickbaity or something. If I wanted to get those kind of views, they would look like that. And so the reason I like subscription model stuff and I think Substack or something like that is a better model is because it makes people just pay for the content they actually want. And there will be several thousand people who do want to know how to set up that emulator. And those are the people that will pay you. And it doesn't take that many. If a thousand people pay you $9 a month, you're you're meeting your basic needs. Yeah. Right. $9,000 a month is a reasonable salary. Mm-hmm. It's not a tech job salary, but it is right. Yeah. I know what so you mean. when you're talking about reducing the number of people who have to come to your videos from a million to a thousand, well, that's a lot more achievable without the clickbait, isn't it? Right. Uh, yeah. And sure. so to me, I think that's really, that's to me, the future of actual quality content has to be more around subscriptions or things like that, because I really just don't think that view count is, it's just not right. It's not right. It incentivizes the wrong things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh yeah, for sure. Like the, the videos out there these days and like the clickbait titles and the thumbnails and you know, what's it, it's definitely got to a point where like sometimes I scroll on YouTube and I just like the stuff I see on there and I'm like, I, yeah. I don't even want to watch, you know, something that's not, you know, a simple title with a simple thumbnail now and yeah. almost like a factual slash educational or, you know, like a trailer. It's like if I watch a trailer for a new movie from the official channel, I know I'm getting a trailer for the new Flash movie. That's it. I'm getting two minutes of, no trailer there's nothing if you're lucky if you're lucky usually what you'll get is a trailer for a different movie first because that's the ad and then you'll get the trailer for the flash movie you were trying to watch an ad for one thing and you ended up getting sent an ad for another thing first oh yeah Mm. yeah i mean uh, it's a so substack i it's the first time i've ever heard of it is on this podcast so like how does that work specifically and like like what Easier, like, like, what do you put on there? So Substack is effectively a serial publication channel. So it's basically a thing where you, you know, it's a glorified blog might mm-hmm. be one way to put it. And the way that it works is every post that you make can be marked as being for everyone, meaning anyone can come to the site and read it. Or it can be marked as subscribers only, which means that only people who pay a monthly fee to you and to Substack, can get it. 
And so it's it's literally just a paid blog in that sense. And so you you put some free content on there, which is designed to let people let like know what is it about and, and what kind of materials would they be getting if they subscribed. And then at any time they can just subscribe and pay you the monthly fee to act for access to the rest of the stuff. And uh, this wasn't really a viable option for me because I make videos. So I never really used it, but uh, most of the other people who use it are uh, news people. So for example, there's many uh, people in the press who have left places like the New York Times or Rolling Stone or whatever, and they start Substacks. And they have Substacks with 300,000 subscribers or things like that, like big mm-hmm. numbers, right? Um, but that's more it was for, like news people, uh, writers, that sort of thing. But then recently they added beta support for video. So now people like me and you can dive in if you're willing to take a little bit of a hit of being an early adopter. And instead of just publishing written stuff, you can now publish videos that are, you know, same thing, subscriber only or, you know, or for everybody. Uh, And also your podcast, for example, they have podcast support as well can do the same thing. You can have it so some of your episodes are free and some of your episodes are for subscribers only. And so that's, you know, that's all it is. But it's been very successful for us. I said, like I said, we've been, we've only been running it for about 30 days and it already makes, I mean, an order of magnitude more money than any other channel for us. Okay. I mean, mean, that definitely sounds interesting. Do you know how old the company is? How old the platform is? Several years, uh, probably five, six years, maybe. Um, I I don't know exactly how old, but yeah, several. And they are now, you know, they they now do fairly large numbers. I mean, they have several million total paying subscribers at this point. Okay. Um, So, you know, across. A bit, to be fair. It's not huge, but it's big. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's getting there. I I mean, it's. it sounds like a, an alternative to, you know, platforms like YouTube and some of these other social media platforms where yeah. somebody, you know, like what we've just been talking about, they, people have got so sick and tired of all the BS and rubbish yeah. that are on YouTube and some of these other platforms that they're kind of being forced to be happy with pain for the content, knowing that it's going to be what they want. It's not going to be They're some... getting value. They're getting value yeah. from it, right? It's like, instead of showing up and it all being annoying and whatever, it's like, no, it's like, when you go to my Substack, all you see is the stuff I put on there. There's no ads, yeah. there's no up next, there's no nonsense. And the comments are all from people who actually subscribed. So there aren't all these idiots commenting on things and being annoying and harassing people and all that other stuff. It's like... You're not going to pay $9 a month to harass somebody, right? No, like um, no matter how much conviction trolls have, they don't have $9 worth of, you know, a month conviction. Or, or if they did, uh, thanks for the $9. At least yeah. I got paid. And then I can also ban you, right? So, yeah. you know, uh, so I do think it's just a healthier model overall for niche audiences such as my stuff and probably your stuff, right? Like things where you know that the total number of subscribers to things that you do are well under the 100,000 mark, mm. right? Like, like I there just aren't that many people who are interested in, like, you know, serious programming stuff. Like, the kinds of stuff I do, it's not a million people. It just isn't. So I know that those numbers are not, re- like, I would have to fundamentally do things I don't want to do to be able to pull in those kind of numbers. 
like the clickbait, like talking about HTML, like, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't want to do that. So Substack is great because it gives me an opportunity to produce actual quality learning materials and get paid for doing it. Because previously, the only real other option for that was to basically not get paid for doing it and just do it for free, which I mean, if you're very wealthy, maybe that's fine. But you know, at least here, we appreciate the cash because like I said, we do mostly R&D stuff and pretty esoteric stuff. So, you know, we're not the kinds of people who are going to be shipping the next Instagram, right? It's just not what we do here. So, you know, we we care about money and Substack has been very helpful for that. So th- thank you, Substack. Okay, that sounds good. I mean, it's definitely something that I'm going to explore a bit more after, you know, this podcast and, you know, see what it's about. So do you promote your Substack much? Or like, like uh, I'm just wondering where your sort of, Substackers or followers are coming from is it well, more organic through their search yeah they're all basically coming from all of the work we've previously done to build mm. that like having handmade hero right because you know what does that do it doesn't really generate money but you know it because like i said the view counts are usually too low for this kind of thing to generate any serious money but it builds up people who know who you are right and i have a you know i have twitter where people know who i am and I have uh, the Twitch and the YouTube channels that people know who I am. And then we also keep a mailing list. So, you know, we had that. So that's really, that was it. Um, there's not much else I can do to promote it, really. Uh, and and so, you know, it's, it's really just organic uh, in that sense. Okay, definitely sound interesting. Something I'm going to take a look at. And, you know, something for the listeners to take a look at if they're, you know, content creators or, you know, they're trying to put something out there and they want an alternative, you know, means of making money and sharing exclusive content. So I'll probably put a link to that in the description for anyone that is interested. So, so yeah, I mean, that's all my questions wrapped up. I just want to thank you, Casey, for coming on to the podcast it's been a long one almost the four hour mark it's been the longest episode that i've done so far do you have any closing notes before we wrap up i don't i don't it's been a pleasure talking to you thanks for having me on and uh yeah for people who do want to check out the Substack, uh i highly recommend it it also does so on hours if you register your own domain name you can actually map it. So they don't even demand that you use like their domain name. So ours is computerenhanced.com. Okay. And it you can go there and see what we've done. And you can do exactly that same thing. You can register like your own domain name. And they even like all of your customers are directly, you create like a Stripe account for the billing and everything. And all of them are still on your Stripe account. So they don't even hide your customer list for you. So I, I, I have to say, like, they've been a very, the, the, the platform is kind of janky. I mean, they could stand to use some more programmers at Substack. <laughs> uh, sorry, guys. I, I'm sorry to say that, uh, but it's true. It's, it's, it, it needs a lot of programming work. But as a company, I, I talked a lot about how I think Valve has a lot of integrity. Substack has had a tremendous amount of integrity. I mean, they are very open and they let you see your customer list and they let you register your own domain name. And uh, so, I, I feel like they're they've been a real pleasure to work with. Uh, you know, from from a standpoint from the business standpoint. So Okay, definitely sounds interesting. What I'll do is I'll get all the appropriate links off Casey for, you know, his Twitch, his YouTube, his Substack, 
and I'll put them in the description of the podcast on you know each of the platforms, Spotify, Google, etc. So you know anyone that's listening that wants to check out Casey's work, you can easily check it out. So yeah, again, I just want to thank you, Casey, for coming on. It's been really insightful, and you know to hear you know the work that you're doing at Handmade Hero and you know your past as well. Because I you know I've been following your Handmade Hero stuff, but I didn't really know your connection and involvement with some of these other companies and how you knew or know a lot of the people, you know, over there and, you know, what you do. So it's, it was definitely good having you on to, you know, shed some light on what your, you know, your background and your experiences. Because uh, when I had a quick look, I couldn't see that you had a LinkedIn page. Kind of explains it now, you know, after we spoke. Uh, but <laughs> is that true you don't have one? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I, I think I had one a long time ago for some reason. Um, maybe when it was just starting, I think like yeah. someone had sent me an invite, but then I was just like, I don't know what the point of this thing is. So I just closed it. I was like, I don't care about this at all. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, every, as you know, from everything we said in the podcast, I just hate business stuff. Um, it's not my thing. So it just seemed like a very businessy kind of place where people were constantly doing recruiting things and weird. And I was like, this sucks. I want to program. I don't like this. So, uh, and it's not useful for PR, right? Because like I said, you know, I have to maintain things like Twitch or Twitter for PR purposes. Uh, but, you know, LinkedIn, that doesn't connect you to gamers. That doesn't connect you to people who might, you know, actually become customers. So, No, it doesn't. Not really. So, yeah. And obviously because, you know, you didn't go down the typical route of getting a degree and then you worked at, a company and then you do, you know you bounce around at a few other companies and you made the contacts so you, exactly. like you said you always had a steady stream of work exactly so you, so you never really needed to go to you know recruiters or you know where recruiters are in the same way and then have that you know presence as well so employers could look at you know you know your linkedin you know, your portfolio, whatever it is, and say, okay, you know, we want this guy because he's got a solid LinkedIn and solid history on that. Whereas you just knew people that worked at these companies, went and formed other companies that did well. And from that, you know, sort of, I guess, refer, you know, first-hand references, they wanted you to go and work there. So what, closing off, what was the favorite, actually, you already said, was it Rad? Was your favorite, you know, company to work at? Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore because, like I said, they got bought in a fairly like a, a, a big acquisition deal. Um, they got bought by Epic uh, because obviously Epic after Fortnite uh, has a lot of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they have been acquiring companies like MetaHuman, like the Quixel people to basically become, you know, to try and solidify their role as like the predominant professional game engine right um and so rad obviously is the company that has supplied the game tools for the industry for the longest i mean their video playback system which i worked on the second version of i worked on bink 2 which was the second incarnation of bink uh is the thing that plays back the video in basically every game that exists uh, and that's been true for decades, right? And so they were a very standard technology company with a lot of very smart programmers. And so I think Epic was just like, we want this company. Um, and so they they bought them and now they don't exist anymore. Uh, I think part of it was also that the founders are getting old. We're all getting old, right? 
Um, and so at some point they were like, what are we going to do with this company after we're done, <laughs> after we're retiring? So, you know, they're all part of Epic now. And so Rad doesn't exist anymore. But that was by far the best place to work. I think Jeff Roberts is the best boss that anyone will ever have. I mean, let alone, you know, a good boss. He was just the best boss you could possibly ever have in the world. And so, um, you know, it was a fantastic place to work. I really liked it. Oh, it's good to hear. So, yeah, when you get a good boss, you uh, even if you want to do your own things, you got to kind of you know hold on to them because <laughs> there are many you know yeah. good ones out there. Yeah. So yeah, thank you, Casey, for coming on, and re- really appreciate it. It was great having you on the podcast. Really insightful, and we'll talk soon. Take uh, care. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye bye.